1: Hobo Army. Mm. (laughs) Welcome to Escaping Society. This is episode 34, Lincoln to Cleveland, Cleveland's first term, 1861 through 1889, U.S. Presidents Exposed. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And this is the third installment, is that right? Uh Out of six. Out of six. I'm holding up four fingers. Mm. So we're halfway through after this episode. And it has almost brought us... Well, it's brought me to tears many times. And I I think Gumby and I have... um...
0: It's brought us both to tears for different reasons.
1: (laughs) Gumby has lost his mind with me. Hmm. Because I am so... I am like fixated on research, and then I just won't do anything after that. I just get stuck in researching. but, but we're here now. but we're here in a lovely park that we frequent. and it's kind of a gloomy day, but it's warm at the end of December. And Gumby's pouring some wine, spodiote. not yet. Oh.
0: But we got our uh, milk jug of dumpster wine here. (laughs) We found some some wine in the dumpster and like both of the uh, boxes of wine had leaks. So we filled every container that we had in the van with wine. And uh, yeah, (laughs) we've been working our way through it.
1: Poor Sherlock, our dog. He's been having to drink wine with his meals. (laughs) No. Um, So I guess we're going to be getting drunk, having some drunk history happening here. I just recently showed Gumby some videos from Drunk History from the past. Not the not the most recent ones. They suck. Um, but maybe we'll share some of those on our Facebook page. But let's get right into it.
0: Well, I have something oh. to say before you get into okay. your first president. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say that, uh, like, to point out that we're not trying to paint a complete picture of these presidents, because as I'm researching, you know, every human life, including a president's life, is a very complex, convoluted story. Mm. So I want to point out to people, like, there are facts that we're omitting, there are things that we don't talk about, because we are, what we kind of coach ourselves on is that we're lawyers trying to make a case that these men should not be in charge, that they are all impeachable, and that they've all been crooks. So... I just want to point that out. You know, if you're somebody who knows a lot about these presidents and you're like, well, they didn't talk about that, there's a reason for that. We're trying to paint an incriminating picture. We want to show a certain side of the presidents we don't feel like gets talked about enough. Um, And I don't think it's possible to paint an entire complete picture of any human being. Any picture is going to be biased and slanted one way or the other. So we are definitely trying to slant it towards the dirt. Um, We want to talk. We want to dig up the dirt on these guys. So... That's why what we're doing and why we're telling this story in this way.
1: All right. So now let's get into it. I feel like I'm going to have to get up on my heels to reach this thing. Well, the first president I'm going to talk about is Abraham Lincoln, a lawyer from Kentucky, oftentimes um, from Illinois, but originally from Kentucky. And I guess my first charge, um, I feel like is my own personal uh, charge violation as a lawyer, but I would charge him with being a slimy lawyer slash politician.
0: I'd like to strike that from the record.
1: (laughs) Denied. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess the the first um, stuff I'm going to talk about here is human rights violations um, for political gain. So, Abraham Lincoln is often rated in these little surveys of presidents as like one of the best, if not the best president. Um, He was the first Republican president, by the way. But from what I've read, if you were to take your hands and reach them out in opposite directions, representing a spectrum. So on one side, you've got the anti-slavery, radical Republicans of the Northeast and abolitionists who deem slavery as a sin. And then on the other side of the spectrum, conservative Republicans who thought that slavery actually hurt white people. It blocked their progress in westward expansion. And they argued that slavery uh, was to be economically inefficient when compared to free labor, a.k.a. wage slavery, and a deterrent to long-term modernization of America. Well, right in the middle of that spectrum, by golly, right there in the middle is where you'd find old honest Abe a moderate if there ever was one, playing both sides of the slavery issue, depending on his audience. Now it's interesting to note that Lincoln's parents both belonged to a separatist Baptist church that forbade dancing, alcohol, and slavery. So when I get into these quotes from Lincoln, it's, it's astonishing to think like he was brought up in this household that they thought slavery was a sin, but somewhere along the line, Lincoln just decided on his own that, well, maybe it's not such a bad sin. I mean, maybe we could live (laughs) for for a little bit longer as best we can.
0: That's called, called good politics.
1: Mm, politic. And yeah, he's kind of, I, in fact, I read this the other day, um, Barack Obama requested specifically the Lincoln's Bible, the Bible that Lincoln swore on or that he owned and Lincoln really wasn't that religious, so I'm not sure where that Bible came from, but I do I do find a lot of um parallels between Barack Obama's presidential uh style as well as Lincoln. Something else to note is that um Lincoln married Mary Todd, and she was likely his third choice of wife. Um Her family owned slaves, by the way, and possibly even uh, had a slave trade going there in her family. Um, Which, while anxiously preparing for his nuptials, someone asked where he was going, and Lincoln said, to hell, I suppose. Uh, (laughs) Mary Todd. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so a lot of the things I was reading about Lincoln were contradictory. It it boggles the mind. And I have some of the things that he said here... um, even starting before his presidency. So he started off as a Whig, proclaiming himself a disciple of Henry Clay. And in 1855, Lincoln wrote, I think I am a Whig, but others say, after the death of Clay, that there are no Whigs and that I'm an abolitionist.
0: He was running against a toupee.
1: (sighs) I do no more than oppose the extension of slavery. And when the new Republican Party was formed as a Northern Party dedicated to all things anti-slavery, Lincoln resisted their early recruiting attempts, fearing that they would serve as a platform for extreme abolitionists, such as John Brown. When what Lincoln really wanted, what he really hoped for was to rejuvenate the Whig Party and all it stood for. And from my understanding of the Whig Party, they were really in love with the Constitution. Like, they didn't really care so much for the people side of things. They just wanted to, like, really stick to what the Constitution said.
0: And they interpreted the Constitution, correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't uh, research the Whigs as much as you did, that slaves were property. It was one of the rights of the writers of the Constitution, right?
1: That, that was um, the split within the Republican Party where ah. Lincoln was right in the middle. They were like, well, I mean, it doesn't, like, not say it. Mm-hmm. And um, there was the Dred Scott decision mm-hmm. that really shook things up, and and was potentially like the last straw before the Civil War. Yeah,
0: we talked about that in our last podcast.
1: And the Republican Party, by the way, they believed that there was a slave power, um, and there was. It was uh, deeply entrenched in the South, and it was systematically seizing control of the White House, Congress and the Supreme Court, and they were so afraid of that because what they were saying was all the southern states that had slaves, they were in charge of everything, and they wanted to kind of beat that back and and bring it back into balance. Well, Lincoln opposed slavery because, let's see, it violated the republicanism principles of those glorious founding fathers, especially the equality of all men and democratic self-government, as expressed in that all-too-important piece of paper, the Declaration of Independence. It wasn't a question of morality for him. It was simply political theory. Before he came to office, Lincoln supported the Corwin Amendment, a.k.a. the Slavery Amendment, which shielded domestic institutions, read slavery, of the states from the federal constitutional amendment process and from abolition or interference by Congress. So this amendment was meant to protect slavery from federal power. A few weeks before the Civil War began, President Lincoln sent a letter to every governor of every state informing them or assuring them that Congress had passed a joint resolution to amend the Constitution, and in parentheses I wrote to myself, to amend or protect slavery.
0: Oh, wait a minute. Lincoln was supporting statehood over federal government?
1: He was saying that uh, the federal government wasn't um, going to mess with these domestic institutions, which included slavery.
2: Yeah, well,
0: that's interesting because Buchanan is condemned for that action right before Lincoln. They even called the Civil War Buchanan's War. It's interesting that Lincoln had the same view, and he's considered our best president.
1: Yeah, and um, there's this guy, I believe his name is Stephen Douglas, and they had so many debates um between Lincoln and Douglas before the presidential election. And Stephen Douglas basically was on record saying, I can't debate with this guy, with this Lincoln. Every time I meet with him, he's like changed his freaking mind. And I'm like prepared with all of these points. And now he's for slavery. Now he's against it. Now he says it's like an abomination and, and it's the worst thing ever. And then he says, eh, it's not that bad as long as we don't extend it into the West. So he was a flip flopper. Um, while Lincoln didn't personally know Jefferson Davis, who became the president of the Confederate States, um, he did know Davis's vice president, who, whose name was Alexander Stevens, from the Whig Party. Lincoln corresponded with Stevens, reassuring him privately that he would not interfere with slavery where it existed. That was a concession that Lincoln was willing to make because he knew the Constitution made slavery legal by recognizing it in the southern states. And that is a fucking lawyer. Mm-hmm. Excuse my language. Lincoln was even close... of court. Yeah. Attempt of court. Lincoln was even close to offering Stevens, his old Whig buddy, a job in his cabinet if it would keep the southern states from seceding. Um, let me see here. So that is just a, an example of where you think that he's against slavery, but then he's saying, well, it's not, you know, I mean, it's kind of not my place, really. Um, Lincoln had four successive terms in the Illinois House of Representatives as a Whig, where he voted to expand the right to vote beyond white landowners to all white males. Okay, catch that? Nobody else. He then went on to support the Illinois and Michigan, or I&M, Canal, And he did work as a lawyer representing the Illinois Central Railroad, a land grant railroad, the one that they sing about in the City of New Orleans song. Um, The Kansas and Nebraska Act marked his return to political life, saying that the Kansas-Nebraska Act had declared indifference, but as I must think, a covert real zeal for the spread of slavery. I cannot but hate it. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate that it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world. Oh, oh, that's why he hated it, because of our just influence in the world Mm -hmm. and our example to the world, I'm sure.
0: And a reminder that uh, England and France and Spain had all abolished slavery at this point while we're setting our just example.
1: Here's here's an excerpt from his Peoria, Illinois speech in 1854. Again, Lincoln, Lincoln is denouncing slavery. He says, nearly 80 years ago, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. But now, from that beginning, we have run down to the other declaration, that for some men to enslave others is a sacred right of self-government. These principles cannot stand together. They are as opposite as God and mammon. Mammon representing greed, wealth, and money. And whoever holds to the one must despise the other. But then... (laughs) Uh... A few years later, in one of those Lincoln-Douglas debates in Illinois, he says, I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races, that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. In addition, and this is Lincoln speaking, this is not me, there is a physical difference between white and black races, which will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, they must be, there must be the position of superior and inferior. Lincoln says, I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Boom. So, I mean, the
0: great emancipator.
1: Yeah, what the
0: hell? That got left out of the movie somehow.
1: Yeah, um, like Henry Clay, his, uh, his idol, Lincoln supported the American Colonization Society, which we've, we've talked about before with, um, Madison and Monroe, um, as well as countless others. So he was in favor of sending freed slaves to a settlement in Liberia because he just, he felt like black people couldn't, um, they they couldn't be in this society. They just couldn't adjust. Um, when Lincoln gave his first inaugural, inaugural address on March 4th, 1861, it wasn't much of a surprise when he declared, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. I mean... This was the guy that I thought I thought he freed the slaves. And there's a quote, there's a passage from um, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States that I thought was really good. It says on page 187, such a national government would never accept an end to slavery by rebellion, like uh, John Brown. It would end slavery only under conditions controlled by whites, and only when required by the political and economic needs of the business elite of the North. It was Abraham Lincoln. Who combined perfectly the needs of business, the political ambition of the new Republican Party, and the rhetoric of humanitarianism? He would keep the abolition of slavery not at the top of his list of priorities, but close enough to the top so it could be pushed there temporarily by abolitionist pressures and by practical political advantage. So you see, Lincoln could skillfully blend the interests of the very rich and the interests of the black at a moment in history when these interests met. And he could link these two with a growing section of Americans, the white, up-and-coming, economically ambitious, politically active middle class. I just think he was a slimy lawyer that turned politician. Um, Lincoln insisted that morality required opposition to slavery and rejected any groping for some middle ground between the right and the wrong. But that's exactly where he was, right in the middle. He wrote a letter to Horace Greeley, the founder and editor of a very respected newspaper, the New York Tribune. And in it, in that letter, he says, My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. I shall do less whenever I shall believe what I am doing hurts the cause, and I shall do more whenever I shall believe doing more will help the cause. I shall try to correct errors when shown to be errors, and I shall adopt new views so fast as they shall appear to be true views." I have here stated my purpose according to my view of official duty, and I intend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. I mean, he's just a polished politician. By that time, they've figured it out. Um, Some people, some historians look at this letter and look at some of Lincoln's uh, rhetoric as his most skillful public relations effort. Some historians think that Lincoln was softening the strong northern white supremacist opposition to his imminent emancipation by tying it to the cause of the Union. But some historians, some other historians think that uh, a bunch of bullshit. Um, since slavery was protected by the Constitution, the only way that Lincoln could free the slaves was by a tactic of war. Um, So, when war broke out, um, after several years, he declared the Emancipation Proclamation. Let me see my information on that. Historian Lerone Bennett Jr. alleges that the Emancipation Proclamation was a hoax deliberately designed not to free any slaves. However, the proclamation, on the day it took effect, did free many slaves— Um, It was interesting that the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, it didn't include some of the states that were in the Union that had slaves. I believe it was um, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, uh, Lincoln's home state, and Missouri. And as long as you didn't secede, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't affect you. You could still have slaves. Even in the state of Virginia, uh, there were several counties that were exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation in the Tidewater region, as well as in the West, uh, the Western counties of Virginia, soon to become the new state of West Virginia. Uh, I just find this all fascinating because of the history that I was taught about Lincoln and what he did for the slaves. Um, Let me see here. If there's anything else I want to add. I feel like I've been talking a lot. There was even talk of um, before the war, just trying to save the Union. Lincoln, in collaboration with another congressman, wrote a bill to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia because it was still there. There was, like, the White House on one side of the street, and on the other side there was, like, a slave auction happening. So they wrote this bill that included compensation for the slave owners, Uh, strict enforcement to capture fugitive slaves, and a popular vote on the matter. Uh, But the bill was abandoned when it failed to garner sufficient Whig support. That was before he was president. So he never really outwardly or inwardly, I think, cared about the plight of black people as being slaves and being tortured for so long in this country. He just basically wanted to make sure that He got the votes so he could be in charge, and he did things that were economically uh, important to his constituents. He didn't really actually care about the people. All right, moving on. Indigenous injustices. Um, There were so many that happened. I'm just going to name a few. I know Gumby's like antsy because I'm talking so much. The Sand Creek Massacre took place November 29, 1864, in the East Colorado Territory. Um, it began when thousands of white settlers in search of gold trespassed on Cheyenne and Arapaho land. Um, Colonel John Chivington led the Colorado militia against Chief Black Kettle, and there were uh, there was a, a drive to relocate thousands of Cheyenne and Arapaho, Mostly women, children, and elderly men um, were killed. The Union troops attacked after a night of indulgent drinking. Anywhere from 150 to 200 lay dead. The remaining survivors were tortured and the corpses mutilated. What the hell? What the hell do you need to do that for? There was a mass hanging of the Santee, Dakota Sioux on December 26, 1862 that December 26th just passed. Um, The Sioux were on the verge of starvation because we had basically ruined their way of life. And they mounted an uprising to drive out mostly German and Scandinavian settlers that were in their territory. But the Union Army troops crushed the revolt, slaughtering the Dakota civilians and rounding up several hundred men. They took 300 prisoners and they sentenced them to death. But Lincoln, the benevolent Lincoln, authorized... Initially 39, one was later reprieved, but 38 of the 300 prisoners to be randomly executed, and this was the largest mass hanging in U.S. history. During the Civil War, Lincoln called for volunteers in the Western territories because professional soldiers were needed back east to fight the Confederate Army. But out west, with few Confederate soldiers to fight, these volunteers attacked indigenous people, And the Lincoln administration did little to prevent these vicious genocidal actions. Lincoln's campaign for presidency appealed to the vote of land-poor settlers, and he believed in free soil, as um, his campaign slogans uh, included. So Lincoln wanted the government to open indigenous lands west of the Mississippi and It was called Free Soilers in reference to the cheap land that was free of slavery. He was known for his free soil stance that opposed both slavery and abolitionism. Lincoln says the institution of slavery is founded on both injustice and bad policy, but the promulgation of abolition doctrines tend rather to increase than abate its evils. The Free Soilers emphasized that rich slave owners would go out west and use their cash to buy up all the good land, used their slaves to work the land, leaving little opportunity and room for the free farmers, ignoring the genocide of indigenous people and the escaped slaves who were already on that land. Lincoln had also signed up for the Black Hawk War earlier in his life, and he actually signed up, re-enlisted, and then re-enlisted a third time in the Black Hawk War because he was that excited about it, and that's kind of sick. Lincoln was elected to lead his company. Um, he was selected by the soldiers, and later in life he admitted that this gave him more satisfaction than any election he ever won. In fact, one time he couldn't remember the command for getting his company to line up and go through a gate, so he dismissed them, and he said to line up on the other side of the gate in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um Lincoln's paternal grandfather, Captain Abraham Lincoln, who he was named for, was killed during the Northwest Indian War Raid, or during an Indian War Raid in the Northwest Indian Wars. And Lincoln's father, Thomas, witnessed that attack. So maybe he was just a man of his time. Maybe that's why he hated the Indians so much. During his four years in office, Lincoln oversaw 19 treaties with Indian nations, and they were land cessation treaties. Other treaties called for the establishments of forts, railroads, stage lines, and telegraphs through Indian territory. And Gumby and I witnessed that as we drove through the country and through some of these uh, um, reservations. They're just inundated with all sorts of our stuff. <laughs> um, he signed. Lincoln signed the Homestead Act of 1862, which promoted westward expansion and further displaced the Indians. The act allowed prospective homesteaders to receive 160 acres of land that that would become theirs after a five-year residency. But what happened was, um, instead of just individuals, it was more like land speculators and investors going out there and buying up all the land. Um, Let's see. There was the Bear River Massacre in 1863, where the U.S. Army attacked a Shoshone encampment. And in April of 1863, another massacre in uh, Kern County, California, Southern California, white settlers and a cavalry unit killed 35 of uh, the Tubatulabal and Owens Valley Paiute men. So as we've heard in the past, just several, several attacks on Indians because we want their land. We want their stuff. Um, Lincoln also passed the Morrill Land Grant Acts, for land grant colleges that focused on agriculture and mechanical research, um, these turned into a lot of historically black colleges. And I wondered, uh, as I was talking to Gumby earlier today, if they were trying to look forward and see, like, what are we going to do with all these, you know, farms and plantations now that there aren't slaves to work them? Like, we need to figure out how to uh, still have our crops, still make money, and do this in a in a new futuristic way so I think maybe those land-grant colleges were the answer or at least part of it as well as Pacific Railroad Acts um, which gave land for the railroads to be built I would also say that Abraham Lincoln was completely out of touch and I guess this would uh, border on ineptitude he imposed the first federal income tax so thanks a fucking lot Abraham Lincoln Um, He did this as the Revenue Act of 1861 to fund the Civil War. Um, It was a flat 3% tax on income above $800, but luckily only about 3% of the population earned that amount. Um, He also approved increasingly higher tariffs on imports to fund the war. He created the greenbacks, uh, which were not backed by gold or silver. And I I just wrote a note that Lincoln appears on the penny and the $5 bill, as well as on the most sacred land of the uh, Dakota people, Pahasapa, in the form of Mount Rushmore. As well as the Indian attacks, there were riots all up and down the nation at this time. Um, Baltimore riots uh, between U.S. troops and Southern secessionist sympathizers. The uh, Camp Jackson affair where Union forces clashed with Confederate sympathizers, the Buffalo Riot between Irish and German dock workers versus their local dock bosses, Detroit Race Riots between working class and uh, the military draft, as well as racism. And this one was interesting, the Southern Bread Riots, which was civil unrest in the Confederacy, and it was mostly perpetrated by women. At one point, there were 5,000 people, mostly women, in Richmond, Virginia, that were violently invading and looting local shops. And President Jefferson Davis came out and pleaded with them to stop. He even reached into his pockets, offered them all the money that he had, threw it at the crowd, and said, here, take it, this is all I have. And God, there's just so many of these. I, I won't bore you with all of them, but check out all of the civil unrest that has happened during Lincoln's presidency. Um, Lincoln said, let every man remember that to violate the law is to trample on the blood of his father and to tear the charter of his own and his children's liberty. Let reverence for the laws be breathed by every American mother. In short, let it become the political religion of the nation. And I say to that, screw you, Abraham Lincoln. You were just in it for yourself, in it to win it. And you didn't give a shit about any of the people that were being trampled upon by others in the country. Gumby.
0: All right, that takes us to Andrew Johnson. Whew, let me paint a little bit of a picture of the the time that Andrew Johnson was in. Of course, Lincoln had just gotten assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, and uh. Andrew Johnson at this time the US had spent one hundred and three million dollars, two hundred and forty well, one hundred and three million two hundred and ninety-four thousand five hundred and one dollars on public works. The South, this is after the Civil War, received only nine million four hundred and sixty-nine thousand three hundred and sixty-three of that. Just a tiny shred, and consider the animosity. Now you got the South and this this war on slavery was not an ethical war, let me emphasize again. It was an economic war. Industry had spread all over the North It had the shorter growing season. There was no uh, Christian um, ethical epiphany that happened up North. Um, so down South, they just lost all their slaves. All the rich white people are broke. All the black people are broke. Everybody's broke down South. And now on top of that, This uh, union that now has taken them back, that they're now a part of again, is barely giving them breadcrumbs. Think of how much animosity that's breeding between already racial tensions. Um, Now, after the Civil War, industry begins to expand into the South. So it's been in the North, and now it's starting to finally creep down to the South, replacing the agricultural um, livelihoods, the plantations. At the same time that Andrew Johnson became president, the transatlantic telegraph cable is finally completed. So for the first time, people are being able to communicate quickly over long distances. Um, Congressman Stevens, who was a passionate abolitionist, Thaddeus Stevens, he was played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie Lincoln. Um, He had a club foot. He was a real well-known character um, on Capitol Hill. But he introduces legislation dissolving the southern states and reconstituting them into five military districts under martial law in which blacks could vote and become delegates, but former Confederates could not. Johnson and Southerners fought for a compromise, and the deal fell through. Now – consider, I I don't blame any of this on Johnson yet, but consider just the bad politics of that. Like how much, you know, we wonder why there's still so much racial tension in the South and where all this came from and why the South was so very resentful. You know, people make fun of the old Southerners, the South will rise again, but look at how the union treated them. You know, they wanted to succeed and they forced them back. Um, and just were barely giving them breadcrumbs, keeping everybody really poor, and we're about to rob the Confederate soldiers of any right to vote while the blacks suddenly had the right to vote. Now think about what that did for the relationships between the blacks and the whites down south. It was just stupid. It was a stupid thing to do. It's almost like they were trying to create racial tension. Um, and also another thing about this time is dynamite was invented. So as these railroads are wrapping across the country, people are starting to get filthy, stinking rich on these companies. As a ship, everything's getting shipped across the country. Now dynamite is, is able to blow holes through mountains, um, just do unthought-of damage um, before dynamite was invented, and it's the new construction tool. So my first charge against Andrew Johnson is I charge him with hate crimes and racism. Um in 1831 as the town alderman of Tennessee following Nat Turner's slave rebellion Johnson spoke for the adoption of a new constitution constitution including provisions to disenfranchise free people of color to rob them of their their newfound right to vote. Um, He believed, as did many Southern Democrats, that the Constitution protected private property, including slaves, and thus prohibited prohibited the federal and state governments from abolishing slavery. They believed it was their right to have slaves, their property. In 1845, Johnson won a second term to the U.S. House of Representatives and supported President Polk's Mexican War, which was seen by some as an attempt to expand slavery westward. And he opposed the Wilmot Proviso a proposal to ban slavery in territories gained from Mexico. So he wanted to spread slavery. The reason it didn't take in the West is um, the theory goes that it was harder to have like big plantations and that kind of agriculture. So it was harder to upkeep a slave trade. Um, in 1859, as Tennessee senator, um, as the, he decried Northerners who endangered the Union by seeking to outlaw slavery – he said that all men are created equal from the Declaration of Independence did not apply to African-Americans. Now, Thomas Jefferson wrote those words, all men are created equal, and considering he was a slave owner, a slave exploiter, a slave raper, you know, I wonder if even he thought all men are created equal really meant what we think it does. <laughs> um, let's see, another charge against his hate crimes, Johnson loathed plantation masters, he had a bitterness for the advantages he didn't have, calling them illegitimate, swaggering, bastard, scrub aristocracy. Damn. And he even despised their slaves, whom he considered instruments the planters used to oppress him. So to him, a slave was a tool. He hated slaves the way you might hate a rich man's convertible. It was a sign of the rich man's wealth. Um, oh, there was something else I wanted to add to that. Maybe I'll come back to it. And. 18 – well, Johnson owned at least 14 slaves, and he was the last president to own slaves. Um, once, Johnson informed Frederick Douglass that – and I quote – the Negro will vote with the late master, whom he does not hate, rather than with the non-slave-holding white, whom he does hate. When Douglass, who was a runaway slave himself, disagreed, Johnson said that Douglass is, I quote, just like any nigger, end quote. Well… Johnson favored a quick restoration of succeeded states to the former Union without protection for former slaves. So he was just in a rush to get the South back in the Union and never mind any changes that might have started to happen. Johnson said, I have lived among Negroes all my life, and I am for this government with slavery under the Constitution as it is. I am for the government of my fathers with Negroes. I am for it without Negroes. Before I would see this government destroyed, I would send every Negro back to Africa, disintegrated and blotted out of space. Well, um a
1: really, really violent Lincoln quote.
0: Oh, he doesn't get any friendlier, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Johnson opposed the 14th Amendment, which gave citizenship to former slaves and every person born in the U.S., except, of course, Indians on reservations, because even as we're trying to wrap our minds around the possibility that black people might be human too, um, we're still trying to wrap our minds around the possibility that Indians might be human. And I suspect part of that is the threat of knowing in the back of our heads that this is actually their land. I mm. think that's one of the reasons why the acceptance of an indigenous people was even slower than the acceptance of blacks. Mm. Um, Johnson said, this is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men. When the head of the Freedmen's Bureau tried to split up plantations into 40-acre tracts for freed people, freed black people down south to settle on, Johnson restored the land to the owners. Thus ended the 40 acres and a mule. So that was what was promised to the blacks. You know, they get get emancipated and they're like, well, what the hell do we do? You know, and they're like, oh, well, we're going to give everybody 40 acres and a mule. Where does that 40 acres come from? Mm. Now, think again, even if this had happened, you got the white people that just fought this war for what they considered their livelihood. You know, we look back and we condemn them for their slavery and rightly so. But it's not that they were morally inferior to the people of the North. It was a livelihood thing, it was an economy thing, and they just lost their livelihood. Now they don't know how to feed their kids any better than anybody else. And that old plantation that they think of as theirs, and by the way, they robbed it too, so it wasn't even theirs. You know, how did the indigenous people feel about it? Now black people are moving on to it and getting 40 acres a piece of it. What do you think that does to everybody getting along? I mean, it was just the whole thing was handled so fucking badly, it, it boggles the mind. Um, and then Johnson stepped in and said, no, actually, we're not going to do that. Um, so that land, nope, you don't get it. When a union general ordered white Mississippians not to form a militia that he suspected would terrorize freed people, Johnson countermanded the order and told the general to send his black soldiers away because they represented a, quote, painful humiliation, end quote, to the white people. As president, Johnson supported states' rights over federal intervention after the Civil War. So like Buchanan, like Lincoln, it turns out, at least some of the time. Many southerner state, southern states passed black codes, binding black laborers to farms on annual contracts they couldn't quit, allowed law enforcement at whim to arrest them for vagrancy and to rent out their labor. In other words, it was just another way to package slavery. Um, let me see. Those are my charges. Well, here's another one. Hate crimes, 1867. In his annual message to Congress, Johnson asserted that blacks possess less, quote, capacity for government than any other race of people. No independent government of any form has ever been successful in their hands. On the contrary, wherever they have been left to their own devices, they have shown a constant tendency to relapse into barbarism, end quote. So here's a question that raises for me. Obviously he was wrong. We've had a black president – you know, it's not meant to question like, "Oh, could he be right? But there's this domesticating influence that we've had on ourselves. We're all under it. We're all shaping ourselves. We know artificial selection works. We've shaped the dog with it. We shape our livestock with it. It's, it's unreasonable to think it doesn't have an effect on a human being when we domesticate ourselves and put ourselves in artificial environments. Think about the black people. How many gel- generations of these black people were slaves? Now, this was artificial selection on steroids. If somebody rebelled, they were put to death in the most extreme way. So generation after generation, the people that stood up, that opposed things, that were the most intelligent, the most willful, they didn't get to have kids. They were exterminated. So over a few generations, you got people that have learned to keep their head down to survive. You just do what you're told. That's how you survive, and that's why you got to have kids and get married and pass on your teachings, your lineage, your genes. What effect does that have on these people? And by the way, nature versus nurture, let's just look at this environment that they've been their whole life treated like children. They get one job. They just work. It's kind of like us nowadays when you think about it, all of us. You know, you get one job, you work, and you don't know how to do shit beyond that job. That's the way I would imagine it was for these black people, and now they're just like, oh, you're free. Go rejoice. Like what the hell are they supposed to do? They don't even get the 40 acres and a mule, Hmm. and that would have been hard enough. Uh, Let's see. And those are my charges against Johnson for hate crimes and racism. My second charge against Andrew Johnson is ineptitude, and I believe he was unfit for office, as if anybody is unfit for this office. In 1849, President Polk wrote of Johnson, professing to be a Democrat, he has been politically, if not personally, hostile to me during my whole term. He is a very vindictive and perverse in his temper and conduct. If he had the manliness and independence to declare his opposition openly, he knows he could not be elected by his constituents. In other words, President Polk was saying this this guy's a dirty rat, and if anybody knew what a dirty rat he was, he wouldn't be in office, of any office. Mm. In 1857, um, Johnson was elected to Senate. A Richmond Whig newspaper referred to Johnson as the vilest, radical, and most unscrupulous demagogue in the Union. I had to look up what a demagogue was. A demagogue is somebody who tends to get support from people based on their prejudices and uh, emotions rather than their reason. 1862. The more you know. The more you know. Johnson was a leading advocate of the Homestead Act, which stated that any adult or intended citizen who had never borne arms against the U.S. could claim 160 acres of surveyed government land. Um, I didn't know quite where to put that as a crime, but the Homestead Act um, you know, this, where does that land come from? Exactly. It's the Indians who are removed from it. It's stolen from them. So suddenly it's just like, Oh, look at all this free land, you know, go grab it. Um, and like the people, anybody that's born arms against the government, that includes every Confederate soldier. There's all these laws that are getting passed to oppress the Confederate soldiers. Now you're trying to bring the South back into the union what the fuck does it do to treat all of the people that just fought against you as terrorists, to put them underneath? It's like they're all ex-cons now. There's legislation b- being pushed that they can't vote, that they can't hold office, that they can't have representatives. Um, they can't own land. So basically it's like now you're the new black folks. And you know, looking back, you might feel animosity about slavery and like, huh, they deserved it. Well, setting that aside for a minute, these people have to get along together. What the hell do you think happens next to the black people?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So Lincoln selected him as vice president because he feared losing the election and thought Johnson, the only senator from a Confederate state still loyal to the Union, gave the ticket balance and star power. Johnson won fame saying things like, traitors must be punished and treason crushed. Mm-hmm. So this is the Lincoln Teresa just described to us. You know, Lincoln's just playing the political field. Yeah, like. Yeah. Woo! You know, here's how I get the vote. I'm going to be over here talking like this. My vice president, he's from the South, so, you know, we corner the market. Cha-ching! Votes! Um, In 1865, Johnson showed up to his inauguration dead drunk. He gave a (laughs) rambling speech, took the oath of office, and then grabbed the Bible, held it aloft, and shouted, I kiss this book in the face of my nation! Whoa! He then secluded himself to avoid public ridicule. It was a big, embarrassing spectacle. Lincoln had to explain to people, like, I swear he's not always a drunk. I don't know what happened this time. Um,
1: Taking si- the drink for you, Johnson.
0: Six weeks later, after this embarrassing uh, inauguration, he was president. Um, in 1866, Johnson, Johnson campaigned vigorously on a two-week cross-country speaking tour known as the Swing Around the Circle. Historian Eric Foner wrote that Johnson got through this by indulging his unique blend of self-aggrandizement and self-pity. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It's me. It was politically disastrous (laughs) with Johnson comparing himself to Christ, arguing with hecklers, and sharing plans to fire cabinet secretaries who disagreed with him. Can't you just see him up there? You fired. (laughs)
2: 1866,
0: the same year as part of his ineptitude, um, you know— We tend to mention the riots that happened during a presidential campaign because when things go right, the presidents take credit for it. So I figure they deserve credit when things go wrong because these are reflections on how the people are or are not being served. We have the Memphis riots in Tennessee. This was three days of white civilians and police attacking, raping, and killing black men, women, and children after a shooting altercation between white police and a recently discharged black soldier regiment from the Union Army. ...until federal troops stopped it. Forty-six blacks and two whites were killed. Seventy-five blacks were injured. Over one hundred people robbed. Five black women were raped. And ninety-one homes in every black church and school were burned in the city. What was that again? The Memphis riots of Tennessee in 1866. <laughs> that same year, we have the New Orleans Massacre in Louisiana. Conflict between white Democrats, police, and firemen... ...against mostly black Republicans parading and protesting the new black codes which were the uh, laws that were created just to basically keep slavery upheld under a new name, which refused to give black men the right to vote. 44 blacks, three white Republicans, and one white protester were killed. Um, As further evidence of Johnson's ineptitude, on the same year, 1866, on Washington's birthday, Johnson came out to give a speech supposedly about Washington. Excuse me. And that's what he said. No, he said more. If he would have stopped there, it might have been all right. Johnson gave an hour-long speech. That wasn't even a manly burp. That was humiliating. Johnson gave an hour-long speech. Um, instead of talking much about Washington, he referred to himself over 200 times. He named a few people, accusing them of plotting his assassination, including the abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens, Tommy Lee Jones in the movie, which the Republicans viewed this whole speech as an act of war. I'm telling you, this guy is like Trump's spirit animal. Um, In 1868, we have the Pulaski Riot in Pulaski, Tennessee. This was begun because of a trade dispute between a black man and a white man, which escalated. One black man was murdered by the end and another black man mortally wounded. Um, Ulysses Grant said of Johnson, the president has no business talking this way. (laughs) That was his way of saying inept. Mm. Um, William Crook, Johnson's personal secretary, said, Mr. Johnson has an unfortunate propensity for coining phrases which could be used against him. (laughs) In other words, he don't know when to keep his mouth shut. My third charge against Andrew Johnson is corruption. Big surprise there, right? 1862, Lincoln appointed Johnson military governor of Tennessee. He demanded loyalty oaths, Johnson did, by public officials and shut down newspapers owned by confederate sympathizers now we're supposed to have freedom of speech these are supposed to be the upholders of the constitution and he's shutting down newspapers um that are run by people with viewpoints different from his own i consider that corruption
2: Hmm. you know like power too
0: yeah these american values seem to be mighty fluid and just kind of uh (laughs) proposed when they're convenient for the right people um Johnson was impeached in the House of Representatives, but narrowly avoided avoided conviction in the Senate. One reason the senators didn't impeach Johnson, this uh, this sounds eerily familiar. He was he was convicted in the House of Representatives, but barely, not in the Senate. And one of the reasons the senators decided not to quite go all the way and get rid of him was next in line was lame duck Ohio Senator Wade, who supported radical ideas like women's suffrage. yeah, I mean, God, there's a lot of things we can talk about, but women voting, <laughs> come on. That's
1: like women driving.
0: Police. <laughs> <It>
1: does
0: that? <laughs> uh, there were also allegations of bribery, so the same old shit. He's trying to pay off senators, you know, and and it's not even remarkable enough at this point that that, like, really got him fired. It's just like, oh, oh he did it, you know, for <laughs> anybody who cares. Um and my final charge against Andrew Johnson is indigenous rights violations. It's almost like a like going to the country club or something like it's just something the presidents are almost expected to do like so what'd you do to the indigenous people here's what i did. Mm. So you can pretty much count like all i have to do is google a president's name and write indians after it. I'm going to find something. Um, 1867, Johnson oversaw 38 treaties, including three with the Sioux, the Crow, the Northern Cheyenne, and Northern Arapaho calling for peace, and the Medicine Lodge Treaty, which relocated Kiowa, Comanche, Southern Cheyenne, and Arapaho to reservations far away from white settlements after the Indian Peace Commission determined that the U.S. government contributed to Indian warfare by failing to fulfill treaty obligations. Johnson called Plains Indians warlike, instigated by real or imaginary grievances, and hostile tribes should not be allowed to interrupt construction of the Pacific Railroad. Um, Typically, people tend to get moral about both the Blacks and the Indians when their wallets aren't in the picture. Mm. So people hated the Indians when They were still living wild and free on the East Coast. Once they're all pushed out West, suddenly all the politicians and everything are like, oh, we need to treat them kindly, you know, because they they don't see them anymore. It's a theory. It's an abstract. While the people out West are still feeling very hostile. They're as land hungry as the people back East were. You see the same thing with the blacks, the slaves. Um, people up North, once they have industry, once they have another livelihood, suddenly they're all abolitionists. Oh, we abhor slavery <laughs> only because the black, the people down South are still invested in this way of making money. That was the big difference. Um, let's see, what do I, else do I have? In 1868, in his final message to Congress, Johnson fails to mention General Custer's surprise dawn attack on the southern Cheyenne village, Washita, leaving at least 100 Cheyenne dead, instead encouraging the, quote, aboriginal population to abandon nomadic habits in favor of agriculture and industry. He said, "Wilst we furnish subsist, subsist, no,
2: he, he,
0: he probably said it <laughs> than that. But he was a drunk. So whilst we furnish subsistence and instruction to the Indians and guarantee the undisturbed enjoyment of their treaty rights, we should habitually insist upon the faithful observance of their agreement to remain within their respective reservations. This is the only mode by which collisions with other tribes and with the whites can be avoided and the safety of our frontier settlements secured." The only means, of course, if you're going to keep taking land and keep expanding and you're not going to stop a damn thing you're you're doing, which, of course, was never on the table. Um, Now, let's see. As final words, those are the end of my charges against Andrew Johnson. And he was kind of one of these accidental presidents that uh, nobody voted for him. He didn't get there by votes. He got there by Lincoln playing Politics and then the unexpected assassination of Lincoln, and boom, he's the president. Um, one thing Johnson said that I did like was he said, Slavery exists. It is black in the south and white in the north. Now he came from a very poor background. One of the things people liked about him was he was a champion of poor people. Um a lot of the decisions he made were because he saw blacks as property, not only property, but property of the rich who he hated. Um he was trying to look out for the poor farmers. Now it was kind of a fucked up convoluted view by our standards now. But uh, a lot of poor people supported him because everybody else was a rich bastard. It was the country club. And I like the way he acknowledged that it's white in the North, that these white people, you know, toiling away at factories and everything, are also of a different kind of slavery. Hmm. And this is about to blow up in America. Um, wait a couple presidential campaigns, and it's about to blow up. And historians of. Yeah, historians often consider Buchanan the worst president right before Lincoln and Johnson the second worst of any U.S. president. I just found it interesting that both of them came from poor backgrounds and they were the bookends of Lincoln. Um, And I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say with that. I just found that interesting that the presidents on each side of Lincoln are considered the worst too and that they're both poor, which is not something you see as often as rich presidents. It's it's interesting how they were singled out. Mm. I wonder if that was like They're trying to say something. And another thing, what do we mean by a successful president? If they're the worst, what do we mean by the best? Mm. When you start looking into that, you usually find presidents that expanded the most, that did the most uh, colonial expansion by any means necessary, that improved the economy, often through violence. Um, I don't know. The whole fucking take is, is fucked up. So that's my case against Andrew Johnson. Impeach that bastard. They tried.
1: Exactly. All right. Moving on to our next illustrious leader, Ulysses S. Grant, and the S stands for nothing. Shithead. Yeah, because um, they just messed up when he enrolled in West Point.
0: If my middle name was Shithead, I'd say it didn't stand for anything either.
1: Mhm. So Ulysses Grant um, from Illinois, he was a uh, he was in the Mexican-American War. He was a Civil War commander. And he was very proficient with horses, although he I, he didn't really get to show that too much. Um, he attended West Point Military Academy, as I said. And some fun facts. Uh, his ancestors arrived in 1630 on the shores of this great country that wasn't a country yet. And his great-grandfather fought in American Indian Wars back then. His grandfather fought in the Revolutionary War at Bunker Hill... And then, Grant's father, Jesse, I don't know if he fought or not, but he was a Whig, and we've heard a lot about these Whigs, and he was a fervent abolitionist, having apprenticed with Owen Brown, whose son was John John Brown. Brown. Yeah! John (laughs) Brown is like the Kevin Bacon of U.S. history. So, Ulysses Grant's dad, Jesse, was actually living under the same roof as John Brown and he picked up a lot of his abolitionist views from him and so (laughs) it was really awkward when Ulysses got married and let's see it was a sister of one of his friends from West Point that he married her name's Julia her family owned slaves and so Grant's father Jesse was like what the hell? Why are you... What, like, don't you feel like this is, you know, kind of a conflict of interest here? But he married her anyway. Um, oh, my cards are flying away. Thank you, um, So, yeah. So, fun facts again. Um Ulysses, talk loud. that one picks up. Yeah. Ulysses Grant um, was in the Mexican-American War. He was sent to Louisiana by President John Tyler to be a part of the Army of Observation. And that was to monitor Texas's transition from Spanish to Mexican control. Later on, Grant was asked to march and try to get uh, Mexico into a war, but it became the Army of Occupation. So there's those, uh, I think it was, was it Zachary Taylor? Yeah, Zachary Taylor's Army of Occupation. So there's all these little uh, connections in history, especially with uh, John Brown and I guess Ulysses Grant. But after a while being in the military, Grant started to drink a lot. And he was offered the choice of resigning or reforming, to which he said, I'll resign if I don't reform. And he was caught drunk again one morning. Um, But no charges were filed. He was able to resign, and he was still in good standing with the military. But without any civilian vocation, he just started farming, and he just decided to use one of Julia's slaves named Dan Uh, But he wasn't a good farmer, and he ended up just moving in with Julia's dad on their uh, 850-acre plantation. Um, In 1858, Grant acquired a slave from his father-in-law, a 35-year-old slave by the name of William Jones, um, but Grant freed him. I guess that was a a good thing because, I mean, what was he going to do with him anyway? He wasn't a good farmer. And I swear I will get into (laughs) the history that I want to charge him with, but I thought that was an interesting background of how he was um, connected with John Brown. So let's see here. Grant actually voted for the first time for James Buchanan, which he said was really a vote against John C. Fremont, whose anti-slavery stance, Grant was concerned, would lead to Southern secession and war. Well, fun fact, Fremont uh, later passed over more senior generals to promote Grant as commander of a district uh, of land of sou- southeastern Missouri. Uh, so now we're into the Civil War. Now, I charge Ulysses Grant as being the anti Semitic butcher. He's known as the butcher. And I'll also tell you a little bit about his, um, what he did when he was in that position. Um, to be considered anti-Semitic. So Grant's battle at Shiloh was the costliest battle to date. and the Battle of Spotsylvania, um, as well as other overland campaign battles, um, they're called the Bloody Angle, was was why Grant was soon castigated as the butcher. There were 154,000 casualties in his army, because of these battles, and 191,000 casualties in the Confederate Army from these battles alone. Um, so he was known as the Butcher. Now, on December 17, 1862, Grant was in that position in Missouri, and he issued General Order Number 11. He believed that the illicit northern cotton trade, which was allowed by President Lincoln at the time, undermined the Union War effort supported the Confederate Army, and prolonged the war while Union soldiers died in the fields. So among Grant's war responsibilities was issuing these cotton trade permits in his district. And his own father, Jesse, along with some Jewish partners called the Mack Brothers, attempted to gain a cotton permit from Grant. They're like, yo, Grant, what's up? You know, you're my son. You know, I kind of thought it was fucked up that you married that girl with the slaves, but here we are, here's some Jewish guys, can we get a permit? And Grant was like, nope. Uh, The general order was given after that, expelling Jews as a class from the district. Grant said that Jewish merchants were violating trade regulations. And Lincoln, to his credit, demanded that Grant revoke that order, which he did three weeks later. But it left a stain on his record for, well... It's almost 2020. (laughs) Um, Later on, he tried to make amends by hiring a bunch of Jewish people um, to work for the government. So I guess that might make up for it, but I still think he was kind of messed up to do that. And let's see. Speaking of a butcher, um, I'm also going to charge him with indigenous injustices, a.k.a. genocide. So there's again several massacres. If you look up the president and the word massacre, um, it often comes up. And there's even a list on Wikipedia of all a lot, maybe not all, but a lot of these um, deaths from Indigenous people. So in 1870, uh, January, there was the uh, Piegan massacre or Pigan. Um 200, mostly women, children, and elderly men of the Hegan Blackfoot, were killed by the U.S. Army in Montana Territory. In 1871, Grant passed a rider to the Indian Appropriation Act. It ended sovereign tribal treaty systems, meaning that they were no longer independent nations and they couldn't make treaties anymore. By law, individual, quote-unquote, Native Americans were deemed wards of the federal government. Another massacre, the Camp Grant Massacre in Tuscan, yes, Tuscan, Arizona. The townspeople hired Indians, Mexicans, and six whites to take revenge on raiding Apaches from the Pinal and Aravapai Apaches. 44 Apache, mostly women and children, were murdered, and 27 additional children were sold into Mexican slavery. This happened in 1871 in April. Also in 1871, the Battle of Blanco Canyon. US Cavalry attacked the Comanche in the heart of their homeland in West Texas. In 1872, September 28th, the Battle of North Fork of the Red River, this is uh, in Texas, the US Army displaced the Comanche, Kiowa, Southern Cheyenne, and Arapaho from their homelands in the Southern Plains, and they forcibly relocated them to Indian Territory. And this particular battle was a precursor to the larger uh, Red River War. I'll get to that later. There was the Modoc War, or also known as the Lava Bed War, where the Modoc wanted to live on their land. Go fucking figure! And we had to go to battle with them. 1872, the Battle of Skeleton Cave, or Skeleton Cave Massacre, um, depending on which side you're on. It was the first principal engagement of the Tonto Basin Campaign under L- Lieutenant Colonel George Crook. It happened in the aftermath of the Camp Grant Massacre, part of the Yavapai War. Um, against the Yavapai and Western Apache bands of Arizona. All these wars are taking place, and you never hear about them when I'm learning about history. All right, this is messed up. William Tecumseh Sherman, thanks for uh, appropriating that name. Oh, yeah,
0: that has always pissed me off.
1: He was writing to Grant saying, We must act with vindictive earnestness against the Sioux, even to their extermination, men, women, and children, during an assault. Or during an assault, the soldiers cannot pause to distinguish between male and female or even discriminate as to age. Um, In 1870 there was an invention of a new method to tan buffalo hides and the buffalo supply was decimated by commercial interests. Now what does this have to do with Grant? Well aside from a lot of those massacres happening under his watch, um, in 1874 Grant pocket-vetoed, which means he did nothing, about a bill to protect the bison. He, sup- he supported this interior secretary by the name of Columbus Delano. Um, thanks a lot, Columbus. Uh, Delano correctly understood that by killing the bison, it would force the Plains Indians to abandon their nomadic lifestyle. So Grant was like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, I mentioned the Red River Wars. This is where my new boyfriend, Kwana Parker,
2: um
1: of the Comanche or the Nermuna.
0: You couldn't keep up with Kwana. I really. <laughs> Don't couldn't. kid yourself.
1: I really could. not I could have been like his maybe like fourth down the line life. No. Um but Kwana and the Comanche were attacked. Um they were trying to get back to their tribal lands and they had put some supplies in this Palo Duro Canyon. They wanted to just be on their land, so they stashed supplies for the winter in this canyon. Um, but they were hunted down um, and, yeah, taken, taken out. Let's see. Uh, November 3rd, 1875, Grant held a meeting at the White House and agreed not to enforce keeping the gold miners out of the Black Hills and to force the quote-unquote hostile Indians onto the Sioux Reservation. This led to the Great Sioux War, a.k.a. the Black Hills War of 1876. Chief Sitting Bull refused to relocate, and warriors led by Crazy Horse (coughs) killed George Armstrong Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn, a.k.a. the Battle of the Greasy Grass. Um, Grant offered a million dollars in provisions for the land of the Black Hills, but in order to get the provisions, the Indians would have to work the reservation land, which, I mean, it wasn't good for farming. That's why they gave it to them in the first place, the reservation land. Um, eventually, in September and October of 1876, Grant, quote-unquote, convinced the tribes to, quote-unquote, relinquish the Black Hills. I'm sure that was, um, everybody was happy about that. Now, Wikipedia claims Grant didn't really have any foreign policy disasters or wars. So what the hell was all that Indian stuff about? I mean, oh, yeah, that's right. We just deemed them wards of the federal government, so it Mm -hmm. wasn't really a foreign nation anymore.
0: They're kind of a no-man's land. They're not foreign nations, but they're also not citizens, so they don't, like, get to vote or any of that shit.
1: It's really messed up. It is. Um All right, so Grant's president, he's done all this bad shit to the Indians, or at least he hasn't stopped any of it from happening. And it's the beginning of the Gilded Age, um, the 1870s up through about 1900. And the Gilded Age, Gumby had asked me this, it's the satirized era of serious social problems. Oh, wait, where did this go? Serious social problems masked by a thin gold gilding. Um... What does that mean? So we were watching this documentary by the History Channel. I
0: think it's kind of like polishing a Turd, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. The Men Who Built America was the name of this documentary. I don't really recommend it unless you're going to take it with like a grain of salt. But um, people like Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Rockefeller. Um, J.P. Morgan. J.P.
0: Junius. Junius
1: Pierpont. Pierpont. Um, Morgan, as well as Andrew Carnegie. And Henry Ford. And Henry Ford. Um, they were basically all taking over in the industry, and, they, and a lot of them were creating monopolies. Especially.
0: It was the age of unchecked capitalism.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there was like, there. what the government thought was, um, if businesses are doing underhanded things, the market will will keep that in check. In other words, no, nobody's going to let that happen. Um, how fucking naive can you be? Yeah, yeah like that.
2: Hmm.
1: All right. Um, Mid-June 1869, Grant had been in office for a few months, and he was lobbied by a pair. Uh, these names actually came up in the documentary, Jay Gould and Jim Fisk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Grant was on board their private yacht, and they wanted to influence Grant's gold policy. Now, Gould and Fisk had built a relationship with Grant's brother-in-law, Abel Corbin, to gain access to the president. Basically, what happened was, what had happened was, um, their plan got all kinds of messed up, and the price of gold plummeted. Panic ensued. Um, September 24th, 1869 was known as Black Friday, and it was not referring to awesome deals at Walmart, (laughs) um... Not long after that, 1870, Standard Oil has a monopoly on oil, replacing the whale oil that was used in lanterns. Um, Pittsburgh riots, Thomas Scott's train yards were set on fire after massive layoffs. Standard Oil had shut down the Pittsburgh refineries, and thus railroad business had gone down. And all of this... You were going to say something? Well, I don't want
0: to speed past that too quick because that's important. You know, we consider one of our biggest problems right now that we are an oil economy. You know, people are like, yeah. that's one of the big problems that we hear over and over. How do we pull away from being an oil-based economy? This is the beginning of it.
1: Oh, and by the way, this actually happens a little bit later. But um, God, Rockefeller, he was an evil mastermind. And aside from laying pipelines so he wouldn't have to pay the railroads anymore to transfer his oil or trans, yeah, transport his oil to different places, he built these pipelines. Cutting right into my prison. Okay, I'm sorry, sorry. What about, do you did you do about the um plastic stuff, the gasoline no. and everything? Okay, well. Pipelines. Pipelines are gumbies, but eventually the byproducts, the stuff that they were dumping into the rivers. Is this cutting into yours, too? That's today? what I wanted you to talk about. Oh, the byproduct of the standard oil that they were using in the kerosene lanterns. They were dumping it into the river.
0: And fields. It was this nasty shit they called gasoline.
1: (laughs) The gasoline. There was no use for it yet because the the automobile wasn't, like, mass-produced. People weren't even... They didn't know about it. So, eventually... John Rockefeller, he got all these scientists together and he was like, can you figure out something where I can make money off of this junk? Because he didn't really care about the environmental impact. He was just trying to make more money. And one of the things that they started coming up with using the oil wasn't necessarily plastic, but it was like the precursors. They were making all these different products from the oil byproducts, the garbage. Oh my gosh. The Panic of 1873. Grant had to go—oh, by the way, this charge is ineptitude. Grant had to go to New York to consult with bankers and businessmen on what to do. I mean, first of all, he falls for a con with Gould and Fisk, and then he's going to the very people that are probably doing this shit behind the scenes in the first place, the bankers and the businessmen. The Panic of 1873 eventually led to the Long Depression, which was an industrial depression that started— with the Panic of 1873 and lasted either until 1879 or 1896, depending on the metrics used. Railroads were going bankrupt left and right. Rockefeller's building those pipelines, moving his oil without the railroads. Um, And there, there starts to be riots. Okay. So there's the Mamaronic riots, um, an armed clash between Italian and Irish laborers. The, um, October 24th, 1871, Los Angeles riots, anti-Chinese riots, a.k.a. a fucking massacre of Chinese people. Um, January 13th, 1874, the Tompkins Square Park riot. New York City Police Department clashes with thousands of unemployed civilians. These civilians didn't want any handouts. They didn't want charity. They wanted public work programs that would give them fucking jobs. Um, They had a permit to have a meeting in this park, but it was revoked the night before. And, of course, nobody has Twitter back then, so everybody just showed up. Over 7,000 workers and 1,600 policemen who were beating the crowd with clubs to disperse them. Uh, That happened. And corruption. I had a quote. Shoot, where did that card that you found... Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, and at this point, I mean, to me, it's remarkable that we can talk about policemen beating the clu- the the crowd with clubs. And, like, you know, we don't find that that remarkable. No. Like, what the fuck is the government for?
1: <laughs> it's for protecting the interests of the people that want they want to have the interests protected.
0: Yeah, the government.
1: The rich people.
0: <laughs> um,
1: this was a quote. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it's from. Grant's presidency took place during the massive industrial growth, speculation, and lifestyle extravagances of post-war that fueled the criminal behavior in government offices. All of Grant's executive departments were investigated by Congress over corruption charges. Okay, now we're on to corruption. Although Grant never profited from any of this corruption, he trusted his dishonest appointees to the extreme, while his responses to scandals damaged his presidential legacy and public reputation. For an example, let's see. Grant accepted the resignation of Thomas Murphy, who was a Russell Conkling ally. I believe Russell Conkling was involved with uh, Tammany Hall. This Thomas Murphy had been charged, uh, he had been charging enormous fees for unclaimed freight, then splitting the profits with a warehouse owner. He replaced Murphy with another Conkling ally, Chester A. Arthur (laughs) Grant was derided for his associations with Conkling's New York patronage machine but wait, there's more Corruption was discovered in seven federal departments, including the Navy the Justice Department, the War Department, the Treasury, Interior the State Department, and even the Post Office as well as nepotism ran, ran rampant in the Grant uh, administration. Over 40 family members were benefiting from government appointments and employment, and this was called Grantism. That that was
0: another version of what they call the spoils system,
1: right? Exactly. Um, Not to mention, getting back to indigenous people, there was a breach of the Treaty of Fort Laramie between the Lakota and the U.S. It was signed the year before he took office, 1868. Um, But it was engineered by Grant, and it was supposed to keep out miners from the Black Hills and no, there would be no war in the West. So he went back on that word. March 3rd, 1873, Grant signed a bill increasing the presidential salary from $25,000 to $50,000 a year. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but think about back then, that was probably like in the millions or something. Also, this bill raised the salaries for the House and Senate members from $5,000 to $7,500. And all of this was legal, except that it was passed in secret with a clause that gave $5,000 in bonus payments to the congressmen for the previous two years of service. So it was like they were back paying themselves and not really seeking anyone's approval and this pissed off the general public because here they are struggling for work picketing to have better working conditions and here's these fat congressmen that are just giving themselves raises you know late at night in a congress session in 1874 there was this thing called the sanborn incident and it's kind of confusing but i'll try grant secretary of treasury William Adams Richardson hired this private citizen, John Sanborn, to aggressively go after delinquent tax payments. Now, the agreement was Sanborn could keep half of whatever he collected. What an incentive! I mean, like bill collectors, but for anywhere in the country. So Sanborn went around to a bunch of distilleries, and he demanded that they pay these whiskey taxes. And he was incredibly successful and kept influencing his superiors to extend his mandate. So more and more names, including 592 railroad companies, uh, were added to his list. He went from, over th- he went from 39 distilleries to over 2,000. So he's collecting all these back taxes, and he gets to keep half. Um, and this is separate from something called the Whiskey Ring Scandal. Um, let's see. Good Lord. This was a network of bribes where distilleries and government officials, a.k.a. politicians, were able to siphon off millions of dollars in federal taxes. Because so many people were involved uh, that were close to Grant, including his private secretary, many people thought the whiskey ring was a ploy for the Republican Party to increase its funds. Good Lord. Uh, Columbus Delano, remember the buffalo guy that he just thought that we should kill off all the buffalo to get back at the Plains Indians? He was the Secretary of Interior, and he was forced to resign due to rampant fraud and corrupt agents in his department. The Secretary of War, William W. Belknap, was taking quarterly kickbacks from a Fort Sill tradership that was reselling food that was meant for the Indians in a separate private trade post on the fort. This led to his resignation. Even Grant's own brother, Orville, set up a silent partnership, excuse me, plural, partnerships, and, res- and received kickbacks from mm-hmm. four trading posts. In his eighth annual message, Grant apologized to the nation and admitted mistakes were made. Quote, failures have been errors of judgment, not of intent. How's it going? Good.
2: How's it
1: going? Go All right, let's see if there's anything else. In addition to... The corruption. I charge Ulysses S. S shithead Grant with all kinds of fucked up political racial shit. So 1870 to 1871, there's these things called the New York Orange Riots that are between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants, and they call them orange heads. I'll let you figure that out. <laughs> the New York City Police Department, as Sounds well like as Trump. as well as the newly formed New York National Guard. Uh, are called because these Irish people, they're parading in each other's neighborhoods and they're taunting each other, and 60 civilians end up dead over some parades. 1870, fucked up racial shit. The Kirk-Holden War. This actually takes place in our backyard here in North Carolina, all right? (laughs) The KKK... We don't have a backyard. The KKK versus... Uh, black people, as usual, Um, they lynched African-American town commissioner of Graham, um, as well as sympathizers uh, to the uh, Republican cause of of abolition. They almost took over Pittsburgh, (laughs) the KKK did. What year was that? Uh, 1870. March 1871, Meridian-Mississippi race riots. I'll let you figure that out. And I had mentioned the Chinese massacre in Los Angeles. Another one, uh, oh, maybe not. Easter Sunday, this was not um, Chinese. Easter Sunday, April 13, 1873, Colfax, Louisiana massacre. 150 black men murdered by a white militia over the governor of Louisiana election. September 14, 1874, Battle of Liberty Place, a.k.a. Battle of Canal Street. The White League, which uh, were comprised of Confederate veterans, let's see, versus – oh, I might be getting all this mixed up. The – I'm going to move on. The Battle (laughs) of (laughs) – I have it somewhere, but it's – I think I wrote it wrong. All right, I'm moving on. That was um, involving the White League and Confederate veterans. November 3rd, 1874, the election riot of 1874 – Maybe this is it, the White League versus the New Orleans Metropolitan Police. That has to be it. Now, this election riot happens in Alabama in a fun town. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it looks like Ufa-lula. Um, <laughs> Freedmen and paramilitary, a paramilitary group of White Leaguers, those Confederate veterans, uh, the White Leaguers attacked blacks at the polls. They killed seven and wounded 70 driving away over a thousand unarmed black people that were at the voting polls. And in 1876, there were a series of race riots and civil unrest in South Carolina related to the democratic party wanting control back from the Republicans. Um, Speaking of South Carolina, I had said in a previous episode of the president's, this Senator named Charles Sumner, um, he got his ass kicked because he was making fun of this South Carolina Senator Um, who was uh, in bed with the harlot of slavery, uh, according to Senator Charles Sumner. Now, there was a Civil Rights Act of 1875, and it was drafted by um, Senator Charles Sumner as well as a, uh, as well as, John Mercer Langston, a prominent African-American who established the law department at Howard University. This was proposed in 1870, but it was only passed in 1875 as a memorial to honor Sumner, who had just died. Now, Grant hated Sumner, and this is why. One night, Grant went over to Charles Sumner's house, and he was like, hey, I want to invade Santo Domingo, a.k.a. the Dominican Republic. Are you on board with that? And Charles Sumner was like, I'll do what I need to do. And Grant was like, okay, cool, he's on my side. But he didn't feel that way. Sumner actually felt the annexation of the Dominican Republic would only enrich private Americans and have it as their island interest, in other words, to make money off of it. So when the Civil Rights Act was passed, Grant never commented on the law, and he did nothing to enforce it. Grant's Justice Department even ignored the law and didn't send copies to U.S. attorneys, while many federal judges called it unconstitutional. And I feel like that civil rights law may have made it better for a lot of those riots that involved black people, especially at the polls. Um, God, let me see if there's anything else. I think I might have made my case.
2: (laughs) I'd say.
0: Uh,
1: Yeah, so screw you, Ulysses Grant. I think I've
0: got it. All right. So that takes us to Rutherford B. Hayes. And uh, yeah, I like this time period. He becomes president on the Republican ticket with William A. Wheeler as vice president in 1877. And every now and then you get one of those years where shit blows up, like shit gets real. And 1877 is one of those years. Um, You always hear about the Civil War because that plays into the propaganda of the United States, you know, like – We like to think of this war that was won by the ethical North over the unethical South, and it plays into our our heritage mythology, you know, proud to be an American and all that shit. You don't hear about 1877 because this is something that doesn't make America proud, but it was pretty damn big because people were fucking sick of the bullshit. Mm. Um, A little bit of the background here. With billions of dollars worth of slaves gone, the South was wiped out. Um, The privileged elite of both the North and the South uh, sought to mend fortunes with the backing of the poor white farmers from the South. So they brought them into an alliance, and as kind of a rallying point, they encouraged them to turn on the blacks of the South who were newly freed. So they would say things to kind of encourage, like, oh, they're taking your land. Um, Yeah, like, you know, they're taking over the politics. They're, you know, anything to keep them focused on them, to keep the the poor fighting amongst themselves while the rich stole from their pockets as usual. The farmers wanted land and other aid, um, not realizing that the aid would be used to exploit them. For example, the Southern Homestead Act um, reserved one third of Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Louisiana, and Mississippi for farmers. But as soon as the um, the wealthy and the elite got into power, they repealed it. Um, Allowing absentee, yeah, like the speculators and the lumbermen moved in. So they repealed it and all the people from out of state, you know, this is where that like crap about people up north, like this fueled some of that hatred. As people up north, the businessmen came in and like this land that was supposed to be theirs, they came in and they just took it. Absentee people, they didn't live there, they just logged it. They made money off of it. Um, In 1877, that same year, there was this economic depression that had been going since 1973, Three, four, five, six. So that's five years of this big depression rocking the nation. Roughly 27% of all working men were unemployed. Workers and farmers were beginning to rebel against the rich. It was called the tramp crisis. Mm. So a lot of these farmers and working, working people were saying, fuck this. I can't win this game. I'm just going to, you know, there's these railroads that are all over the country. I'm going to start jumping trains. I don't want anything they can give me. Fuck them. Um, that same year, the Chicago Tribune advises, quote, putting a little strychnine or arsenic in the meat and other supplies furnished to tramps as a warning to other tramps to keep out of the neighborhood. Another paper proposed flooding poorhouses with six feet of water so that tramps would be compelled to bail or drown. People were really getting hostile. This class war was getting really sharp. The poor were getting dangerous because they were sick of the shit, and the rich, who had all the power, were fighting back against the poor, and it was getting really ugly. A charities official explained that the Civil War had taught to a large number of laboring men the methods of the bivvy, Having learned how to travel quickly, find temporary shelter, and forage for food, and otherwise, quote, trust tomorrow to take care of tomorrow, the Civil War veteran possessed the skills to live without working. So the first hobos were all Civil War, Civil War veterans. Mm. They had fought on either side of the Civil War, had gotten screwed over by the government. The rich just get richer, and they were sick of it. They turned away from it. And so you had the first, I would say, you know, with all these riots and rebellions through American history, to me, this is the first movement of people that were just done. They weren't trying to riot and get a piece of the, the pie anymore. They were saying, fuck the pie. I don't want the pie. You know, I'm just going to go out there and live like a wild person. Um, Let's see what other background if I got here. So we got Rockefeller, um, Rockefeller. <laughs>
2: Rockefeller,
0: and now he's conceiving of pipelines. These pipelines, Teresa and I were talking about. This is where he first starts thinking about them. The modern pipelines that have been uh, laid in the ground through America back in 1877. This is the first thought of how to do it, and he did it because the railroads were taking advantage of him. They were making a lot of money off of his oil that he was transporting across the country, and the oil economy back then was lights. Of course, people didn't have cars to put oil in, but already people were getting addicted to gas. They'd used it to fuel these lanterns instead of using whale oil back then. It was the new lighting technology. Um, so the pipelines are getting laid in, and now the railroads are getting screwed. Um, you know, They had all gotten together and said, well, let's get all the money we can from Rockefeller. He's getting a lot of money. And so he started building these pipelines, and now he doesn't need the railroads anymore. Um, This is also the year that Edison invents the phonograph. So for the first time, you can record voices with the record player. Um, So let's see. Oh, and in 1878, a Massachusetts police officer states, this tramp system is undoubtedly an outgrowth of the Civil War. The bummers of our armies could not give up their habits of roving and marauding and settle down to the honest and industrious duties of the citizen. So this was a big thing, you know, it got kind of played off in the 20s through vaudeville of like the comic tramp. But when it first started happening, it was the hobo army. It was a revolution. It was like that shit that everybody's looking around nowadays, wondering why the poor keep getting fucked and don't do anything about it. Back in 1877, they were about ready to do something about it.
2: Mm.
0: But that gets buried in history. They don't want us to be inspired by this. So we get told the history of the Civil War where the industrious North, you know, abolishes slavery and we're all free now free to get fucked by the rich (laughs) spread them (laughs) so um my first charge against rutherford b hayes is corruption let's see go through my notes here my first point of corruption is in 1877 hayes lost the popular vote so once again you know people say go vote make a difference vote once again voting fails the people everybody voted for the other guy didn't matter rutherford hayes won Um, He needed to win the electoral vote. So in other words, the who's who, the people that actually make the decisions. Um, Republicans made concessions to Democrats, um, the Democratic white South, including an agreement to remove the Union troops from the South, which ended the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. This reestablished white supremacy and began the Jim Crow era. In other words, another way to oppress the blacks. The North and the South elite came together to get Hayes, a sellout, choosing ambition over integrity, elected. So Hayes just kind of played politics, got elected, got the power, and didn't matter what the people voted for, not that it ever does, he became president. (laughs) Um, Hayes swore to serve only one term, hoping to reform the civil service. Most politicians were political loyalists, and more thought was given to perpetuating the power of the political parties than finding the best qualified candidates same damn thing we're doing now, you know, we get like actors in office. We get reality show guys that are presidents. <laughs> and the party rallies around them. They don't give a fuck if they can do the job well or not. They want the political power. It's about the party gaining power and keeping power. Same thing back then, 1877. Um let's see. In 1878, following the Pereg- Paraguayan War, Hayes arbitrated a territorial dispute between Argentina and Paraguay, awarding the disputed land to Paraguay. Worried about French plans to construct a canal across Panama, he interpreted the Monroe Doctrine firmly, saying to Congress, The policy of this country is a canal under American control. The United States cannot consent to the surrender of this control to any European power or any combination of European powers. So in other words, that fucking Monroe Doctrine that we talked about in our last, po- last podcast, mm. or I guess that was the first one maybe.
1: Yeah. It, it'll crop up its ugly head whenever.
0: But here it is again. You know, the uh, United States, like in everybody else's business, just whatever they can do for their own financial interest. Um, my second charge is ineptitude. So old Rutherford B. Hayes. Ruther Fraud. Oh, good one.
1: (laughs) That wasn't my original.
0: That's the wine talk, and she didn't mean that. It
1: might be a little bit of the wine. In
0: 1877, (laughs) now this is the part that I wish I'd learned about in history class. In 1877, this depression that had been going on for five years had led to horrid living conditions. Um, Sewage was running through the streets. The cities weren't getting taken care of. Like, babies were were dying. Kids were just dying of illnesses everywhere. The poor were just... Getting fucked and exploited to the max There had never been a period in time Where the the gap between the rich and the poor Was bigger During the great uprising Which was a whole bunch of railroad strikes Chicago businessmen patrolled the streets with rifles Demanding that the militia suppress Quote, the ragged commune wretches There were railroad strikes all over the East and the Midwest. I mean, like every hour there was a strike going on. The railroads had stopped. America was frozen. America had become reliant on the trains to bring all the goods. And so what was taking over the railroad yards? Migrant workers, hobos. These were people who didn't need to work. If you fucked with them, they'd just say, screw you. I don't need to work. I'm not going to work. And so people would just walk off. They'd strike. Hayes. pres. Yeah, I do, too.
2: <laughs> President
0: Hayes sent in the militia, but they weren't reliable because many of the militia were railroad workers themselves, and they were unwilling to fire on their friends and neighbors. The railroad executives called on Hayes to deal with the strikers as if they were waging war with the United States. Um, and I love this, that the the militia was called in, and instead of fighting the the protesters and the hobos, they joined them. Like, every time they'd send in a militia, the fucking strike would get bigger. <laughs> Since much of the United States Army was busy with Indian battles out west, J.P. Morgan, um, one of the capitalist uh, giants back then, a banker, and other bankers lent money to pay officers but not the enlisted men to get more people to join this military fight to put down the strike. Hayes mobilized the whole war department, even sending ironclads and naval vessels, something he'd done before as governor of Ohio to suppress a coal strike. Damn. And this was a precedent set by Washington way back in the Whiskey Rebellion to use the United States militia against its own people. Mm -hmm. Um, And what are we taught about the army? They're out there protecting us, you know, securing our freedom. But again and again, we see this militia, this army get used against the American people whenever they step out of line to try to get justice. Um, Thousands sympathetic to strikers in Baltimore, Maryland, surrounded the National Guard armory and hurled rocks. The soldiers came out firing. The ensuing battle in the streets left 10 men or boys dead, more wounded, and one soldier wounded. Half the troops quit and joined the attack against the train depot. And now the numbers against the train train depot were numbering 15,000 people. Hayes sent 500 federal troops to quiet it down and get the trains moving, but strikes were happening almost every hour all over the East and Midwest. Um, the U S tramps were blamed. This was the tramp crisis. This was a time when homeless people, people that had decided they don't need all the consumer bullshit. They don't need a house. They don't need anything that people are trying to sell them so they can get rich. They rejected it every, everything. And, uh, basically shut down America for a while. And this was wow. the beginning of many strikes. Like, this is a really interesting part of history. I always wondered why I didn't know much about the late 1800s and early 1900s. This is why. Because it was all revolts and rebellions and riots and hobos, and they don't want us learning this shit.
1: It doesn't look good for the American experiment.
0: No, they want us helpless. They want us feeling like you need all this consumer crap and and to be reliant. Howard Zinn wrote in A People's History of the United States... The government of the United States was behaving almost exactly as Karl Marx described a capitalist state, pretending neutrality to maintain order but serving the interest of the rich. The purpose of the state was to settle upper-class disputes peacefully, control lower-class rebellion, and adopt policies that would further the long reign stability of the system. The arrangement between Democrats and Republicans to elect Rutherford Hayes in 1877 set the tone. Whether Democrats or Republicans won, national policy would not change in any important way. So it's the same game we got now. Um, That same year, there was a San Francisco rat in California. This was two days of violence against Chinese immigrants by whites, which resulted in four deaths and $100,000 worth of damage to Chinese property.
1: And that doesn't sound like a lot again, but that's significant amount of money nowadays.
0: Yeah, God knows. Um in eighteen eighty we have the Garrett Rock Garrett Rock May Day riot in Paterson, New Jersey. Robert Dalzell fired on a rowdy May Day crowd of Catholic German immigrants on his father's property as they were drinking and kinda of passing across the, the corner of the of his property. He killed one, which escalated into a mob of 10,000 people
2: oh, trying
0: no. to lynch him and his father. His father filed, fired wildly at the crowd and wounded a little boy and girl, which pissed him off even more. Oh, no. They had to uh, call a local respected Catholic priest to, to intervene and kind of distract the crowd while constables got the Dalzell's away. So this was some of the chaos happening under uh, why I charge him with ineptitude. Um, and... Now for – what was that? Yeah, so my third charge is indigenous rights violations. Same old shit. That just never gets old with these politicians. So for indigenous rights violations, we have – Hayes and Interior Secretary Schultz carried out Hayes' American Indian policy, including assimilation into white culture, educational training, and dividing Indian land into individual household allotments. Indians lost much land through sales of what the government classified as surplus land, and more to unscrupulous white speculators who got Indians to sell their allotments. The Indians were now responsible for policing their own reservations, though they were generally understaffed. So if you've ever heard about these fucking boarding schools that Indian kids get sent to where they weren't allowed to talk their own language, where they were beaten, Mm. where they had to dress like white kids, they got their hair cut like white kids, Hayes was one of the instigators of this. This was his Indian policy, um, along with Secretary Schultz. And even though they got the Indians, like they thought they'd broken them, they'd gotten them on the reservations, the battles were over. They couldn't fucking get them to do anything because, like, the way they lived tribally, they didn't need to work. And that's when they figured out that capitalism has to be selfish. And these Indians, if they worked as a tribe, they would never get them to join the workforce, not like white people. So they had to convince them to have private land ownership. No, no, no. You are – your family owns this land, not that guy. That's his (laughs) land. You own this land. And so you're competing – With this guy, you you're not working together. You look out for your family. They had to get that into their head because that is how they could finally control the indigenous people, just like they fucking control us. They keep us working against each other. Um, In 1877, a punitive expedition under Colonel Nelson Miles defeats the Sioux and Cheyenne. The Crow and Blackfoot are ejected from their reservations. So the Crow and Blackfoot were already on reservations, and now they're kicked out of that. Yeah. Oot Indian holdings in Colorado are confiscated and open to settlement. Gold is discovered on the Salmon River in Idaho, and whites invade territory promised to the peaceful Nez Perce Indians. The Nez Perce, led by Chief Joseph, disobeyed an order to move on to a reservation and began a 1,700-mile retreat into Canada, which was stopped by General William T. Sherman. So these guys, they, were, they had a reputation for not fighting. They didn't want to fight. They didn't see a point in it. But they did want to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> They didn't see that they could get a fair shake here. Every time something was promised, it was a lie. So they were trying to get away from the United States and get to Canada, and even that was stopped. Um, And this was also the year that Crazy Horse surrenders and is killed by a member of his own tribe who had joined the U.S. militia. So in other words, an Indian wearing a blue coat, which Mm -hmm. I just find tragic as shit. And this guy's name that used to be one of Crazy Horse's uh, main warriors that ran with him was Little Big Man. I always wondered if this was the uh, the name that inspired the Dustin Hoffman movie. Um, 1878, the Bannock War, armed conflict lasting three months between the Bannock and Paiute warriors led by Chief Buffalo Horn and General Oliver O. Howard's army. Buffalo Horn was killed, and then Chief Egan led Indians and were forced onto reservations as prisoners. In 1879, we had the White River War with the Ute tribe when Indian agent Nathan Meeker tried to convert them to Christianity, and it was killed. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
2: That was kind of his fault.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So those are my charges against Rutherford B. Hayes and— As corrupt as he is as a president, what I find really compelling about this was the time period. He happens to be president and a good example of corruption where people are sick of it and they are not just rebelling anymore. It's not a riot. It is a movement. And we're going to hear – stories about fucking tramps and hobos through a lot of presidents from here on out because the people are trying to leave civilization at this point they want to live wild and free they want to sleep under the stars they want to ride trains they want to carry just own what they can carry on their back Mm. Uh, i mean it was a tremendous culture um by the end of his presidency we have the first commercial telephone exchange so that's something that's about to hit the public um in 1879, we have a yellow fever epidemic beginning in New Orleans, Louisiana. We have Congress passed the Chinese Expulsion Act, abrogating the 1868 Burlingham Treaty with China, allowing the unrestricted flow of Chinese immigrants into the U.S. Um, so they wanted to stop all immigration from China because they'd already exploited them and gotten done what they wanted to do. They had helped build the railroads.
1: Now get the hell out.
0: Now get the hell out. Now they're competition. Um Hayes actually vetoed this, and the Democrats in the House of Representatives tried to impeach him for vetoing this, but they failed. <laughs> impeachment was just the go-to thing back then. You know, you hear a lot about this impeachment, like, oh, it's going to set a precedent. Every every president they'll try to impeach. They've already done that shit. They just described the
1: 1800s. Either that or assassination.
0: Yeah. Kill the motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I'm advocating that, because that, I mean, is, that, that, that mean, is illegal.
1: That's right. We only, we only want legal solutions.
0: Yeah, we meant kill him in a symbolic uh, yeah. way, like kill him with kindness, yeah. send him some flowers. <laughs> um, both countries, China and the United States, agreed to work together to reduce immigration um, after this bill was vetoed. Um, Edison tests the first light bulb in 1879. The British you know, all the way across the country, we have all these countries that are colonial powers. They finally overpowered the Zulus in Africa. The Zulus in Africa were kicking ass. Like the way the the Europeans came over here and brought diseases, it was the opposite when they went to Africa. They ran into diseases that the natives had already learned how to live with. They weren't killing the natives, but they were wiping out their little lily white asses left and right. But now they invented the Gatlin gun, which could fire bullets and just rip through human flesh like – never seen before, and finally they defeat the Zulu, unfortunately, and so um, they move further inland in Africa. Um, And in 1880, during Rutherford B. Hayes' presidency in Europe, industrialized food is begun with new technology. They discovered that the oil and flour turns rancid, so it's removed. The new flour is without valuable nutrients, and that remains unknown to grain processors for almost half a century. This is the beginning of, of... What do you call it? Fake food?
2: Mm. Yeah. Franken food.
0: Franken food. This is the beginning of food that you eat. You think you're eating something. It's not doing shit for you. Um, And in 1880, the industrial expansion in the United States picks up. It moves into high gear through immigration. Now, instead of slaves, since that's over, they're bringing in. We're a nation of immigrants, so let's bring in as many as we can, except apparently the Chinese at this time.
2: <laughs> that's right. They had
0: enough Chinese. Yeah. So bring in everybody else and get them to work shitty jobs and just expand this industrialization because the rich are fucking getting richer. And go ahead.
2: Oh, no, no.
1: Go ahead.
0: Um, and finally, John D. Rockefeller. 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 His empire now controls 95% of U.S. oil refining. On his way to being the biggest monopoly in United States, if not world history, he's about to be the richest of the rich. And that is my case against Rutherford B. Hayes.
1: My goodness, when yeah, when you said like uh, we were opening our doors to the immigrants of the world, except for the Chinese. um, Later on, when I talk about Grover Cleveland. Um, that was something that also came up in his presidency, that he, I believe it was him, he thought that uh, just like the indigenous people, he didn't, he didn't feel like the Chinese would be able to assimilate into our culture. So if you, if you are of a like culture, you can come over. If you're too different, we don't want you. But on to James Garfield, um, lest we forget his very short term in office. James Garfield, um, believe he was from Ohio. He, oh, yeah, he actually okay. So he was what they call, I guess, a self-made man. He uh, he started out as a janitor wow. at the school he was going to, um, and then he became a teacher after he learned everything that the school could teach him, uh, and then he became a lawyer. And then a politician, and those kind of went back and forth for a little bit. He was also a Union Army commander in the Civil War.
0: I predict a bad fate for this man.
1: Yeah. And he was the only president that was also an ordained minister. Hmm. He was also the only president... Damn,
0: he was fucking Mr. Rogers. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't fucking Mr. Rogers. He was like Mr. Rogers.
1: Yeah. He was also the only president elected from the House of Representatives. Like, he was in the House of Representatives and he was just, like, talking and there were debates as to who should be on the ticket and they were like, how about Garfield? And he was like, no, 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 no. And they were like, yeah! And then then he was voted as president. <laughs> like, bam! Um, So he, he was in office for about six months. Um, but before that, before he was president, uh, in fact, ten years before he was president, I charge him with an indigenous injustice or genocide uh, or future genocide at any rate. So in 1871, Garfield served on a special commission to carry out President Grant's executive order to remove the Flathead Indians from their homeland in Montana's Bitterroot Valley. Boo! (laughs) And Garfield, while he might have been an ordained minister, he had a very low opinion of uh, of the indigenous people, he called it a mockery for the representatives of the great government of the United States to sit down in a wigwam and make treaties with a lot of painted and half naked savages. Um, he spoke despairingly of the future of the Indians, believing nothing could be done to stop quote the passage of that sad race down to the oblivion to which a larger part of them seemed to be so certainly tending. Perhaps, he concluded, it was best to let the Indians slip into extinction as quietly and as humanely as possible. (laughs) Fuck that guy. Um, Let's see. There was another quote I wanted to read. Yeah, talking about the extinction uh, of the indigenous people. The race of the Red Men will, before many generations, be remembered only as a strange, weird, dreamlike specter which once passed before the eyes of men but had departed forever. He said in 1863, as a member of the House of Representatives, uh, he he proposed a bill that would transfer Indian affairs from the Interior Department to the War Department, if that gives you any indication of what he uh, thought about the Indians. A few years later, on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, now this is a, um, I'd say, well, this has to deal with corruption. I guess I'm setting it up. Um, The people are responsible now more than ever before for the the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt— it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it is because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. If the next centennial does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nation do not aid in controlling the political forces. Ooh, I think he called us out. (laughs) Um, But then, so that was just setting us up for my next charge of corruption. Um, He was actually involved in uh, a scandal. It came to the public's attention in 1872 that the future president, then lawyer-slash-representative James Garfield, had been a part of the Credit Mobilier of America scandal, which was basically corruption in the financing of the Union Pacific Railroad. Um, via credit mobilier's grossly inflated invoices. Now, Garfield was allegedly offered stock in the credit company, which by then was rolling in dough, and he allegedly refused it. But there was a matter of about $300. Again, back then, uh, it was a lot of money. Garfield received this $300, which he swore was a loan, but. Uh, the Massachusetts Congressman Oakes Ames, who was in charge of the Union Pacific Railroad project, said under oath that it was a dividend from stock that uh, that Garfield had purchased. So, three hundred
0: dollars is a lot to me right now.
1: Well, that's true. Hmm. So there was a uh, possible um, involvement, alleged involvement in a scandal, and even the even the historians, like even the people that write biographies on Garfield, are they are not ready to say he was free from guilt. They said he might not have told a lie, but he didn't necessarily tell the truth either. <laughs> Just like a politician. Um, let's see here. Abuse of power. Garfield was also responsible as the Appropriations Committee Chairman for shepherding the legislation for the salary grab of 1873. Remember I talked about that in Ulysses Grant's uh, First term, I think it was his first term, through the House of Representatives. So Garfield was in charge of that. Now, he might not have agreed necessarily with it, but he was in charge of it, just like so many of these things that we bring up with the presidents. He's overseeing it, even before he was president. Um, He was also a neutral observer in the Electoral Commission of 1876. Now, let me see, have that written down. Did you mention this about Rutherford B. Hayes? What? Well, it was between him and Samuel Tilden. Nope. And there were voting irregularities in three of the southern states. So an electoral commission was formed. Um, Who was over that was James Garfield. Um, He was supposed to be a neutral observer, but uh, he was a Republican. And the person that won, Rutherford Hayes, was a Republican, And furthermore, the commission had 15 people. Eight of them were Republicans, seven were Democrats. So guess who was declared the winner? Well, we already know that, Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, (laughs) Spoiler. Yeah, spoiler alert. That was the second of five presidential elections in which the person who won the popular vote did not win the election. All right, that was backtracking a little bit to Grant and also to Hayes. Um,
0: And shit, two of the times the electoral vote went against popular vote were in my lifetime, so I guess they decided (laughs) they liked it.
1: (laughs) Let's see, what else did he do? There was an alleged extramarital affair um, in 1862, again, before he was president. uh, He was a Civil War general, and this was right after his wife, Lucretia, had nursed him back to health from jaundice and significant weight loss. And eventually she chose to overlook the affair, but I thought that was pretty fucked up, considering that he had just gotten better. Like, she had just helped him out. But that's the type of man he was. (laughs) And also an ordained minister. Um, And I guess wrapping this up, because he did have such a a short tenure in office... um, He was shot. So Garfield was uh, shot on July 2nd, 1881, just four months into his presidency. But he didn't die right away. Um, And the doctor... Was it on a Monday? I don't remember.
0: Because Garfield hates Mondays.
1: Ah, that is awful. So he didn't die right away. His doctors were trying to keep him healthy by feeding him a lot of porridge or oatmeal uh, with milk. And he hated that. Uh, so he was told that there was a sitting bull, chief sitting bull, who was starving as a prisoner of the army. And when he was told of sitting bull's plight, he said, let him starve. Oh, wait, send him my oatmeal.
2: <laughs>
1: That's messed up. I don't know what kind of charge I have on that, except he's an asshole. Um, And I I would like to conclude that while Garfield might have had tenderness in his heart for African Americans and their rights, he spoke less highly, much less highly, of indigenous people and Mormons.
0: I don't like Mormons either. Um, All right. That brings us to my last president, which is Chester A. Arthur, who was mentioned earlier with Grant, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Now... His wife, Ellen Herndon, died a year before his presidency. Um, Usually when you see black and white pictures of, like, men and women back then, they're kind of, like, not, how should I say this, not very attractive. Mm -hmm. His wife was hot. Mm -hmm. So, like, I invite you to go to Wikipedia and check out this black and white picture of Ellen Herndon. I mean, my goodness. And apparently he was kind of a, a civil rights lawyer in New York before, like, He was always wealthy, but when he met her, she really, like, loved wealth, and he started kicking it into high gear and apparently getting involved in a lot of corruption. And when you see a picture of her, you're like, all right, I get it. My first charge against Chester A. Arthur is corruption. Um, Before his vice presidency, Arthur worked as a civil rights lawyer, and – then um, he worked for the New York Customs House. About 70% of federal revenue came through the Customs House, which collected duties on imports. So, yeah. So when shit came through the Custom House, you know, they would collect like a tax, a duty. Yeah, uh, you
1: know. <laughs> you know, fuck
0: me up every time I say duty. I
1: had so much wine right now.
0: <laughs> I thought I was drinking all that shit. That's a relief. Arthur and others got a cut from imposing fines, which was a strong incentive for malfeasance. So in other words, Chester Arthur and all of his buddies, like anytime they could find something wrong with any import, um, whether it was made up or not, they would get a cut. And so people in the customs house were known for getting really fucking rich. If you wanted to get rich quick, you'd be really lucky if you got a job at the custom house, as long as you didn't mind, you know, malfeasance, bending the rules, however you wanted to, to get rich. Um, He gained office due to the spoils system, not by vote. So this was something we talked about earlier, the spoils system where you kind of made deals like uh, Garfield really hated Chester A. Arthur. You know, He was complete opposite viewpoint. Um, And so the spoils system was sort of like you'd make a lot of agreements. And if you wanted to just kind of tuck somebody away someplace where they wouldn't do much harm, um, you'd make them vice president. So He got to be vice president, and they thought they'd just be able to kind of forget about him, make a deal, you know, rub the right – grease the right wheels. But then fucking uh, Garfield got shot, Mm -hmm. and now Chester A. Arthur is the president, and everybody hates him. Nobody saw this coming. And back then, by the way, if you're keeping score, consider how many impeachments or attempted impeachments or assassinations happened in these – what is it? Seven presidents we're doing right now? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Man, people are sick of this shit. (laughs) So Arthur – Drunk and feeling he was among friends at a dinner put on by the Union League Club members at New York's Delmonico Restaurant. Um, J.P. Morgan and Ulysses Grant were there in the audience. This was before his inauguration as vice president. He almost couldn't help himself by boasting about the corruption that got him there. In his toast, he said... I don't think we had better go into the minute secrets of the campaign because I see the reporters are present. You cannot tell what they may make of it because the inauguration has not yet taken place. If I should get to going about the secrets of the campaign, there is no saying what I might say to make trouble between now and the 4th of March. If it were not for the reporters, I would tell you the truth because I know you are intimate friends and devoted adherents to the Republican Party. Oh
2: my God.
0: And he was making a reference to all the votes that were bought with corrupt money. Not long after that, Charles Guiteau assassinated President Garfield, and the reason why Charles Guiteau assassinated him was he was a political climber, and he was trying to talk to all the people in Garfield's campaign, and the only person that was even vaguely nice to him was Chester A. Arthur, so he got it in his head. If he could kill Garfield then Chester A. Arthur would rise to be president because of the spoils system would probably give him a nice job. And so he just started telling everybody, "Now Chester Arthur is president. So he got this whole, basically the whole country that fucking already hates Chester A. Arthur. And now somebody just killed the president. Mm. And the the guy that killed him is saying, yay, Chester A. Arthur is president. (laughs) So basically Chester A. Arthur went into hiding for a little while. (laughs) Um, Now actually Chester A Arthur I couldn't help but start to kind of like the guy in a way cuz mm-hmm. this is also a story of redemption even though like he's another corrupt politician and he he's kind of stayed corrupt in a way but he's hiding out he's beside himself all the reports are he's sobbing like people are you know he he goes to Garfield's wife who hates him and just like basically falls apart on the floor and starts sobbing like a baby um, he did not want to be president. There has never been a man that was less thrilled to wind up being president than Chester A. Arthur. And in the middle of this, you know, the whole country's calling out for his blood. Um, this woman, this bedridden New Yorker named Julia Sands begins writing these letters to him. And she calls herself a little dwarf, which is like another way of saying jester. And the dwarf was the person who traditionally was the one person who could speak truth to the king. That's why she called herself the Little Dwarf. And basically, she was saying the whole nation is in mourning, not just because the president is dead, but because you're about to be president. They (laughs) hate you. But I know something about you, Chester Arthur. I know when you were a New York lawyer fighting for civil rights to allow black people to ride the tramways in New York. Um, I know you used to do good. And I know you can rise to something better than what you've chosen to be. Um, So... This is kind of a beautiful part of the story, and I kind of wanted to leave this out because I'm trying to make a case of how much these presidents suck, and he does suck. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, this was just such a neat part of history.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, And apparently, like, this this writing back and forth was kind of what got him through, and I'll refer back to these letters at the end of this, Um, but... Yeah, one of actually one of Arthur's last acts before he died, as I'm charging him with corruption, was to burn all of his papers. Um, you know, as soon as he knew he was dying, he was like, "Burn everything. I don't want people to know what I was into. I don't know, want people to know what was going on." The one thing he didn't have burned was the letters from Julia Sands. Aww.
2: Um,
0: and to me, that's kind of a, a beautiful thing. Like he, I think he thought of those letters as representing the best part of himself. Um, kind of maybe feeling bad about being such a corrupt politician. Um, I also charge Chester A. Arthur with ineptitude. He was not fit for office. Um, Arthur was vain. He moved his birthday year back to appear younger. He would tell people, like, a false year, so they would think he was younger. During the Civil (laughs) War, he was a brigadier general, but he encouraged everybody to call him General General. Kind of giving himself like a little promotion there. Mm -hmm. To look fresh as vice president when he got the job, Arthur updated his wardrobe, running up a bill of $726.75, which is roughly like $18,000 today. And he paid it in cash. I mean, this guy was a high roller, and at a time when there was these strikes, people are starving, he's just throwing money around on a pair of pants. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine what that looks like to the poor workers out there, like, trying to figure out how to feed their kids, and there's this asshole, like, buying a wardrobe for $18,000. In 1881, during his presidency, Chicago, Illinois, is the first American city to create local Um, ordinances regulating smoke discharges, followed soon by Cincinnati, Ohio. So for the first time, air pollution had been a thing that had been noticed for centuries. But for the first time in America, finally, industry that's, you know, I said spreading in the South and then picking up with all the immigrants, now it's getting to the point where the cities are starting to get worried because the air stinks. It's hard to breathe. People are starting to think about pollution. Maybe they've crossed a line. Um, Arthur had no vice president, but he was the first president to have a personal valet. Mm. Former President Hayes described his behavior as a debauchery of, quote, liquor, snobbery, and (laughs) rosé. Arthur loved indulgences, caring more about parties than running the country. He hosted as many as 50 state dinners, the first one he held for general and Mrs. Grant in 1882. All the upper echelons of Washington society ate food cooked by an imported French chef doled out by servants wearing customized uniforms selected by Arthur himself, oh who longed for his days as vice president, which afforded status without responsibility. Mm-hmm. He really hated being uh, the president. He habitually stayed awake until 2 a.m. Sounds like he was kind of a party animal. He mm-hmm. just wanted to, like, hobnob with all the rich people and be rich, and he didn't want to actually do work. Like, This sucked. And I guess this is generally – like I find it suspicious that a guy killed the president and this guy rises to power. But I guess most historians don't even entertain that for the very fact that he seemed to hate the presidency so freaking much. <laughs> um, in 1882, there was an insurrection in Greenwood, New York. Tax disputes and taking of land to pay taxes, in other words, crooked, gov- crooked government guys you know, taking money from the poor again, led to an armed resistance. People grabbed their guns and said, fuck you. Come try to collect it. Um, In 1883, in Social Problems, which was a text written by Henry George, the Tramp Crisis continues, and Henry George asked, What is the Tramp? Known as he is from the Atlantic to the Pacific, he constitutes an appearance more menacing to the Republic than that of hostile armies or fleets bent on destruction. Deeper significance reside beneath this terrible phenomenon, the Tramp. The unemployed workingman's degeneration into a vagabond and an outcast. A poisonous pariah reminds us that in civilized man still lurks the savage poised to emerge wherever men were alienated from property. Now, I found that really interesting because he draws that parallel between if you're alienated from personal property, in other words, the idea that you can own land – then the savage might arise in you. And what are they trying to do to break the savage and the indigenous people? Convince them to own land. Mm -hmm. I found that a really interesting parallel between the two things happening at this point in history. In 1884, there were Cincinnati riots in Ohio. Always in fucking Cincinnati, Ohio.
1: It's on the edge of the frontier. It's one of the biggest cities in the nation.
0: Yeah, Like Ohio's got – well, never mind. I'm not going to say anything bad about Ohio. Hmm. Uh, Public outrage over a jury verdict of manslaughter in what was seen as a clear-cut case of murder. There was a violent mob for a few days, leaving more than 50 people dead and the courthouse destroyed. Um, And in 1885, John Swinton's paper published a letter from, quote, an old soldier on the tramp who claimed to have fought from Bull's Run to Chickamauga, Lookout Mountain, Mission Ridge, and others. After describing mass unemployment in his Indiana hometown, he expressed resolve to, quote, rig me up some kind of an outfit, take to the country and forage. It is enough to make a man damn himself for coming to the rescue of such a government that allows its soldiers to starve.
2: Mm.
0: So once again, you know, the government like gets people to fight, kill and murder and then leaves them out in the cold. How many homeless people do we see on the corner now that say like homeless veteran? Uh, It's the same old shit. And we keep signing up to fight their wars for him. And this... This tramp crisis continues. You know, it's scaring the hell out of people in power. And in 1885, we have the Rock Springs Massacre in Rock Springs, Wyoming. A riot between Chinese and white miners left 28 killed and 15 injured. So, all that I say is Chester A. Arthur is somewhat responsible as the leader and the commander in chief um, for ineptitude. I also charge him with abuse of power. Um, So, He started rebuilding the Navy and laid the groundwork for a more expansive role for the federal government. Now, this is kind of a tricky one. Like the Navy, of course, we use to invade other countries. You know, it's said that we're protecting the shores. But how often do we actually have people trying to invade us that the Navy protects us from? Moreover, they're sent out to invade someone else. I consider that an abuse of power. Um, I would think that our commander-in-chief is meant to keep things running smoothly here. And at a time when things are blowing the fuck up everywhere, he's building up the Navy to go take over other places and make more money for the rich. Mm. And more federal government. This was a time when, like, state rights often involved slavery. So it was a tricky issue because if you believed in state rights, you were kind of saying, like, ah, oh, the slave states, they can keep their slaves. But if you believe in federal government – That might abolish slavery, but then you've got this one rule. You've got 1984, George Orwell's 1984. You've got Big Brother, this one government that encompasses all these diverse peoples and forces them to live under the same law by the same value system. Um, I think that's an abuse of power. He also signed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the thing that got vetoed by Rutherford B. Hayes. Well, it came back and he signed it. It's the first total ban on a nation or ethnic group from immigrating into the country. Um, I also will charge him that was abuse of power and indigenous rights violations. Oh, let's see. Here we have, regarding Indians, Arthur advocated, quote, severing their tribal relations and individuals owning land so they could be schooled and assimilated into an American society, which was the method favored by liberal reformers. Mm. So all the bleeding heart liberals back then were like, you know, this is how we need to take care of our red brothers, you know, send them to school, teach them the, how to read and write like good white people.
1: I'd imagine they'd call them red children.
0: Yeah our red (laughs) children, and and teach them how to own land. These poor savages don't even know. They share everything. Teach them how to own land so they can be industrious citizens and participate in America. This is the kind of fucking bullshit that led to all kinds of shit that's still happening. Um, In 1885, settlers and cattle ranchers continue encroaching on Indian territory. Arthur opened up the Crow Creek Reservation in Dakota Territory to settlers by executive order. So he used his power as president just to, even though it was on a reservation, you know, they'd already been pushed here, and here's the little, like, crappy piece of land they get to have. Now he opened that up, like, oh, why don't we go settle on that? Sorry. So I guess for any final words I have about Chester A. Arthur, um, I guess the only thing I want to add is back when I mentioned the the British colonizing. The beating the Zulu and colonizing Africa with their Gatlin gun. Now a few years later, an animal known as the Quahaha, you've probably seen a picture of it. It looks like a zebra up front. looks kind of like a horse in the, from its shoulders down. It's wiped off the face of the planet. Um, so now after all this industrialization and colonialization, we're starting to see species that have been here since the dawn of time blipped off the face of the earth. Mm. So there goes the Quahaha. Now we can only see it in pictures. And that's my case against Arthur.
1: Hmm. I'm I'm sad for the kohaha. And yet, I've got one more president to do. Fuck
0: it.
2: Drive through. Oh
1: it. my god. So we've gone through. This is the 22nd president now. We've got 22% power left on the iPad. Let me see if I can do this. <clears throat> Grover Cleveland, A.K.A. Big Steve. I am not making that up. His first name is Stephen. He was known as Big Steve before he was president. He decided to go with Grover to sound more grown up.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was a lawyer from New Jersey/slash New York. Um, the first Democrat elected since before the Civil War, so the the country really must have hated Chester A. Arthur. They were like, all right, we're ready to get the Democrats back in here. <laughs> He was also the only president to get married in the White House, in the Blue Room. Um, My first charge is Grover Cleveland, you creepy fucking bastard. Um, But more about that later. So, Gumby actually told me this. So, before Grover Cleveland was president, he may have had an illegitimate child with a woman by the name of Maria Halpin. And this woman named her chi- child, Oscar Oscar Folsom Cleveland. More on that in just a moment. Oh, was the Folsom prison named after him? I don't
0: know.
2: Oh fuck.
1: All right. So Oscar Folsom Cleveland may have been the bastard child of Grover Cleveland. She named the you know last name Cleveland in hopes that he might do something, and he did. He had the child taken away and put in an orphanage asylum, and then he had Maria committed to a lunatic asylum for saying that he was the father. In fact, she was released...
0: Didn't I hear he raped her?
1: Yeah, she was released from the asylum after the doctors realized that she wasn't crazy. She was fucking raped by this guy and had his baby, and then he threw her in an asylum. Um, So that happened. So Oscar Folsom, who the hell was Oscar Folsom? Well, he was one of Grover Cleveland's friends. And okay, thank you for that. Um, Grover Cleveland had this friend and law partner. And his friend had a daughter. And let's see, you're distracting me. So, Oscar Folsom was his friend, and unfortunately, Oscar was thrown from a horse-drawn carriage and killed. Now, (sighs) I didn't even get any. So, once the father, Oscar, was killed, his little girl daughter, Frances, uh, was kind of adopted um, by Grover. Grover was... Wait a minute, your
0: story has an Oscar and a Grover?
1: I'm trying to if tell If there's a, a story, fucking
0: snuffle up, I guess I'm gonna shit my pants.
1: There might be. <clears throat> Alright, so listen, I'm getting ash everywhere. Okay. Are you following along? Because I'm like drunk and high. <laughs> so listen. Last
0: president, you can do it. There
1: was a, a little girl by the name of Frances Folsom. Oscar Folsom's daughter. Not Oscar Folsom Cleveland. That's a little baby. Grover is now the guardian of Francis and he buys her like her first little baby doll stroller. Mhm. My part of the podcast is going to suck. Okay. When so Grover was a bachelor, when Grover kept being asked, "Why don't you get married?" and it was suggested, "Why don't you get married to your friend's Widowed, you know, the wife, the widow, um, Mrs. Folsom, he's like, why do you keep telling me to get married to some old woman? Maybe I want to get married to somebody younger. Maybe I'm just waiting for my wife to grow up. Oh. Oh, my fucking God. So, Francis Folsom, who he is, like, the guardian to, grows up. And they continue to, you know, hang out and whatever and correspond while she's off in college. And it's at that point that Grover decides he wants to make a move. Because, you know, now she's going to be all, like, grown up and stuff. He fucking married his, basically his adopted daughter. He married when he was 49 and she was 21 and I'm not saying it's always about age. <laughs> I'm definitely not saying anything about age.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a lucky
1: bastard. <laughs> but he literally married this little girl that he had cared for for most of her life. Um, and I think that's creepy. And I think he's also a bastard um, and a rapist. Um, good Lord. But that's, I mean, that's just little details. Um I charge him and I feel like that's also an abuse of power um mm. with you know raping a woman. But
0: okay. rape itself is a yeah,
1: mean, yeah a crime. But I'm just saying like that that could also be considered that. All right. He was a supporter of Indian assimilation policies and using education as integration. Um as Gumby had mentioned in previous uh presidential administrations, private land ownership. And I like this one. He liked having the federal government as paternal guidance. I bet he liked that paternal guidance part with the Indians. Mm, Just like Francis. Um, He signed the Dawes Act in 1887, authorizing the president to divide Indian land into individual allotments. Two years later, he signed the Indian Appropriations Act Act officially opening unassigned lands, quote-unquote, to white settlers. So um, Cleveland had said, while some Indians are lazy, vicious, and stupid, others are industrious, peaceful, and intelligent. While a portion of them are self-supporting and independent, others still retain in squalor and dependence, almost the savagery of their natural state. So he wasn't a fan of Indians, big surprise, Um, But yeah, he basically opened up the quote-unquote extra land um, that the Indians were inhabiting. And he was like, oh, well, we could just sell that off to white people. (sighs) He established laws and a six-member commission to more closely inspect how to move Indians toward quote-unquote civilization. This commission ascertained which reservations might be reduced in area, which Indians might be consolidated to other reservations and which Indians, quote, should be invested with the right of citizenship. And he did all this uh, as well as called for land surveys of all the reservations for the allotment of land um, for, you know, speculators on the railroads, etc. These Indians... Uh, who accepted an allotment of land, were given either 40 acres for orphaned Indians or 160 acres usually for two single or two adults. But they had to live separately from their tribe for 25 years before they would be granted U.S. citizenship. So they had, like, stipulations for this land, right?
0: Yeah, that is fucked up.
1: And they had to work it, too. Um, Yeah, and just think of the implications of that. Being away from your your tribe, the only life that you knew for 25 years. They're breaking you. They're breaking you even more than they've already done. Any remaining land was considered surplus and sold to non-Indians. By 1934, over 90 million acres of Indian land was lost, or two-thirds of the 1887 land base. Uh, two days before the end of his first term, he signed that Indian Appropriations Act, officially opening unassigned land in Oklahoma. That was the Indian Territory. Hmm. He opened it up to white settlers under the tenets of the Homestead Act. Good Lord, I feel like I've missed some things here. Um, let's see. I'm going to back up and... But I'm writing this for
0: me, so don't try to...
1: Okay. Oh, I wrote, ha, I was trying to be clever, but now I'm drunk and high. So I said, not an Indians fan, Cleveland. Oh. oh! Cleveland also hated on the Chinese. You know, the people who built a lot of the railroads out west. He didn't believe, I said this before, that they would assimilate. Um, so I charged him with being a Borg. It's
0: pretty good. Wow, that's a new crime. I, I like
1: it. Yeah. Um, on October 8th, 1888, he signed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which restricted Chinese immigration to the United States again, as well as prohibited Chinese immigrants who returned to China, their homeland, from coming back to the United States. The federal government did not eradicate barriers to Chinese immigration until 1943. So if you left the United States to go back to see your family or something, you couldn't come back to the United States, so make your choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned uh, the September second eighteen eighty five Rock Springs massacre or riot in Wyoming, mm-hmm. but I'll just mention a little a few more details. Um, white miners killed Chinese immigrant miners. I said that. and both groups were employed by the Union Pacific Coal Company. Huh? twenty eight lay dead. 15 injured. 79 homes were set ablaze and many of the dead and the wounded were thrown into the fire. Ooh.
2: Uh, February 6th through 9th,
1: 1886 was the Seattle Riot where Knights of Labor rioters and federal troops ordered by President Cleveland removed, quote unquote, over 200 Chinese people. So um, they were really hating on the Chinese immigrants out West, which is interesting because now it's like really full of Asian people, all sorts of up and down the West Coast. Um, let's see. Now, Grover Cleveland was known to be like laissez-faire in his economic policies. Um, the, in the hard times, quote, though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. <laughs> Good times. Wow. Uh, yeah. He just
0: fucking spelled it out, didn't he? Yeah.
1: So, um... I, I guess I'm charging him with ineptitude or just, like, enforcing class hierarchy because he didn't get it right... Um, he didn't get it right with the Chinese. He didn't get it right with the Indians, which is, like, genocide. But he also didn't get it right with the white working class. Um... Let's see. Check this out. So, during his first term...
0: Gotta make sure we can move it over.
1: I know. During his first term, there was a court case called Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad Company. Now, you can look this up yourself because there's a lot of shit going on in that uh, Wikipedia article. But the ruling of this court case was interpreted to mean that corporations are people too. In the eyes of the Constitution, and the Fourteenth Amendment, which was intended in the eyes of the Constitution, uh, excuse me, that was intended to endow the freed slaves with the rights of citizens, was cited to protect corporations from being deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law.
0: Yeah, that blew my mind when you told me that, because like that was a huge fucking turning point. Like it still comes up a lot. And how sick is that? Like, now we have killed the indigenous false believers in animism because we're Christians and believe in the one true God, and now we're assigning life to corporations. How fucking, like, darkly animist is that? It's like the Sith of the animists.
1: Do you know what this was all over? The railroad company didn't want to pay taxes on fences that were bordering the fucking railroad tracks. So that's what gave corporations rights as people. Um, And I'd mentioned this too. Judges and politicians assumed back then, I mean kind of, and now too, that competition would thwart any effort by corporations to abuse their privileges. The market, not the government, would serve as a regulator. Um, Again, the laissez-faire policies of Cleveland. And there was something else that was interesting. So There was a punishing drought in the mid-1880s in the United States, which drove thousands of farmers under as the global markets drove prices way down on corn, grain, meat, and even wool. Um, As this was happening, there was a request for $10,000 to be allocated to Texas farmers that were recovering from the drought. But during his first term, President Cleveland signed a law instead awarding $26 million in loans to private railroad corporations, and he vetoed the $10,000 to the Texas farmers. So thanks a fucking lot, President Cleveland, you bastard. Um, God, let's see. He did sign Labor Day into law in his second term, which we'll talk about in another podcast. And let's see, the last couple things I have. May 1st, 1886, there were 35,000 workers that walked off their jobs. Across the nation, there were 300,000 to upwards of half a million workers who struck. Um, Tens of thousands more joined them on May 3rd and May 4th. On May 4th, the Haymarket Riot, or Haymarket Affair, or Haymarket Massacre, took place in Chicago, it began as a rally supporting workers who were striking for an eight-hour day instead of like a 12-hour day or whatever, and wages. Um, an unknown person, and I put in parentheses, anarchist, threw a bomb into the police as they were um, trying to disperse the public meeting. This resulted in the death of eight officers and an unknown number of civilians. <coughs> I tried to look up, <coughs> excuse me, the number of civilians. It says. Possibly four died and 70 or so civilians were wounded. That same day on May 4, 1886, there was the Bay View Massacre or tragedy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 7,000 building trade workers and 5,000 Polish laborers struck against their employers demanding an eight-hour workday. Um, They were met with 250 National Guardsmen under the order of the governor. Seven people died, including a 13-year-old boy, and several more were injured.
0: I wanted to say something about the anarchist in that Haymarket affair. Oh, I, I just heard that—I uh, I don't know if this is a true quote, but I think it is—that when he was in prison, he said, "I couldn't have thrown the bomb. I was home making bombs."
1: <laughs> oh, 19th-century humor. So yeah, if you're loving on um, Grover Cleveland, wait for our next episode because there'll be more of his second term. Um, Also in this time frame, Nikola Tesla quits working for Edison. And there's a funny drunk history that I might post on our Escaping Society website of uh, Nikola Tesla. I think it's the best one. Well, check this out. Edison said, like, if you get this to work, I will pay you $50,000, which was $1.1 million in like 2007, all right? Now... (laughs) Tesla, upon completing the project, was like, okay, where's my money? And Edison was like, oh, once you're an American citizen, you'll understand the joke. And he refused to pay him. And Nikola Tesla was like, fuck you, I quit. In 1886, (laughs) Tesla formed the Tesla Electric and Manufacturing Company. Um, This was also the time frame that Mark Twain uh, published Adventures of Huck Finn, published in February 1885, so that was in your, um, who was it? it, Hayes or Arthur?
0: 1885,
1: I don't know. And in June of 1885, the sta- Arthur. Arthur, the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York, and it was, uh, it was also commemorated, I believe, later in that year. And it was commemorating the United States and France's love for each other in the Revolutionary War. Um, so those are the things that were happening back then. And so far, 22 presidents, and they all suck. Yep. All voted um, voted in quotation marks by the people.
0: Yeah, we're halfway to our current president, by the way. This is half the uh, the number of presidents.
1: Although if we get a new president before we finish this, we will be short. Short, less than half. True that. <laughs> all right. So this concludes the uh, the presidential section. And I'm going to read a quote or a comment that uh, came from New Orleans, Nowlands, from a listener named Mike. And the reason I'm picking this one is because I I tried to mention Nowlands <laughs> in some of the uh, riots, so maybe you could, like, check those sites out or whatever. But, uh, yeah, there was a lot of um, especially race riots and riots over the uh, elections going on in Louisiana. Mike says, Hello, Gumby and Teresa. My wife just recently turned me on. To your podcast, oh! She sent me a link to an episode, and within the first ten minutes, you got fucking problems. I know. Within the first ten minutes, I heard Daniel Quinn referenced, and I knew I was in the right place. Your <laughs> your podcast is amazing, and exactly the kind of thing I've been looking for. Just wanted to reach out and let you know it's been it's being very much appreciated by at least two weirdos in New Orleans, Not-Lens. Having been a musician and done podcasts in years past, I know how it can be to not get much feedback and wonder if anyone is out there on the same wavelength. Please, oh God, please keep it up. Cheers. And if we had any more wine left, oh Mike, God. that I was
0: think. an awesome message. It should have been read by a sober person.
1: I will drink to that. <laughs> and I will also conclude by saying um, thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear any information that you have on presidents, as well as any comments, um, constructive criticisms.
0: Oh, I want to respond to Mike's uh, oh, yeah, sorry. message. I just want to say that you're right. Like Sometimes it is like, we really do appreciate the feedback, like uh, you know when you were saying that I forget how you worded that. But, like you've done podcasts and been a musician, and you kind of know how it like is good to get feedback.
1: Is there life out there?
0: Yeah, so we love getting these messages. And uh, oh, yeah, if you Thank got you. any questions, like I'll let Teresa finish her spiel, but we mean it. yeah, I mean, we love questions. If something like goes through your head, it's fun for us to read it, consider it, and try to add it
1: exactly. And um, let's see. our website, EscapingSociety.Weebly.com That's the best place To send us a comment There's a comment form Right on the home page. there You don't even have to look for it Just scroll down And the uh, Facebook page I often try to update And Gumby post stuff to That's hilarious And or informative Or both um, that's,
0: Hilariously informative Yeah
1: On Facebook Type in Escaping Society And we're not the music band We're the other one
0: I play a little music You, you know. heard the theme song
1: That's true and I thank you for listening.
0: Oh, yeah. wait, wait, wait. I got something for you to check oh, out. Oh, okay. Man, right. you're moving fast now. <laughs>
1: what?
0: <laughs> I wrote this down. I thought uh, when we were going through the presidents, I just thought it was interesting how Crazy Horse died 1977. 18... 1877. 18. And this is the same year that the Hobo Army busts out. It's almost oh. like... It's almost That's like this, it. this resistance that they thought they had stopped just fucking kicked into a harder Hell gear. Yeah, because this hobo army is about to be at least as big of a problem as the Plains Indians were. Hobo. Amen. All right, now I'm done.
1: All right. Well, thank you for listening. Send us comments, escaping society dot weebly dot com. Peace.
0: Bye.
1: Thank you.